What's happening, weirdos? I am so happy, uh, perhaps to introduce, maybe you already know Stephen Mitchell, but for those that don't, to introduce this incredible, incredible author and spiritual teacher to you guys. Stephen Mitchell has written some of the best books that I've read, certainly in my life, and definitely, definitely, definitely in the last month. Uh, we talk a lot about most of them. Um, we talk about the gospel according to Jesus, which blew my mind, changed my life. If you have any interest or baggage or history or uh, curiosity about the historical account of Jesus and what he said and what he probably didn't say and this and that and, and like a wonderful Zen-leaning analysis of the story of Jesus, it's just incredible. I've been telling everybody about it. And uh, I'm so happy that I got to talk to him about that, as well as Stephen's new book, which is called The Way of Forgiveness, which is just beautifully written and a very, very heartfelt and necessary message that just is, we love it. We love redemption. We love forgiveness. It's a beautiful story. And again, these are Bible stories told from a Zen-leading perspective. So there's no religious agenda. They're just sort of, I, I suppose... That's my feeling. There's no agenda in a religious way. It's just uh, communicating deep spiritual truths in whatever tradition Stephen finds them. He's also translated the Odyssey. He's translated Gilgamesh. He's translated, as I've referenced and read from many times on this podcast, the Tao Te Ching. Unbelievably life-changing work. Stephen Mitchell. So excited for you guys to hear this chat with him. He's also happens to be married to Byron Katie, which was one of my most recent favorite episodes. If you haven't listened to it, check that out. He wrote Loving What Is with Katie, which is the book that I always, I think I've recommended uh, maybe even more than the other ones. I mean, as much as the other ones. Why am I qualifying? How many? Who cares? I recommend it all the time. <laughs> all right. Let's get to it. This episode is brought to us, as always, by our friends at Charlotte's Web. Get yourself some CBD Calm gummies. I've been living on them, been needing them. Go to charlottesweb.com slash weird and use promo code KEEPITCRISPY19 for 10% off. Uh, these uh, Pete's Picks, as I call them, are products that I actually use and love. And I always want to give a little heartfelt imploring. This is what I'm doing for my life, for our livelihood. It's the only work that we're able to do. So if you have any leaning and if you're moved to want to support the show in any way, even in a small way, I always tell people just uh, just get a Pete's Pick. And speaking of, everybody needs underwear. It's usually the one I point people to. Go to MeUndies.com slash weird and buy some underwear. This was like maybe two, three years ago. Val and I just realized we hated our drawers, our drawers of drawers. And I was like, I'm a grown man. I'm tired of not feeling great. I'm tired about not feeling great emotionally. I'm tired about not feeling great in my underwear or about my underwear. So I did. I heard about MeUndies on other podcasts. And I was like, I got to try it. And I did. Super easy to try. Uh, they, In fact, if you buy a bunch, they give you one trial pair that's outside of the, the rest, which I really think is cool. Their undies are so soft irresistibly soft, made from trees. Seriously, they're made from beechwood trees, and they spin that into micro-modal fabric, which is super soft, incredibly cozy, breathable, and light, and the best-fitting underwear that I've found. Truly comfortable from head to toe, if you're going to wear a onesie, which, you know, let's be honest, quarantine, great time for onesies, or PJ pants, which I'm wearing right now. 
And I seriously look forward to the Halloween printed undies. That's a little fun fact about me. I share a lot on this podcast, but maybe you didn't know. I like my undies to match the season. And I'm looking forward, as I'm a member of their MeUndies membership, for my new Halloween-themed undies. That's one thing for real. It puts me in a good mood to put on something colorful and fun. Or you can have their grown-up ones, which are simple prints. Uh, Simple like, you know, blacks, your grays, your blues, greens. You know the colors. Unbelievably comfortable. Unbelievably comfortable pajama pants. Unbelievably soft. Everything that they make. So get into it. Everybody needs some underwear. And if you love this show, please support us by going to MeUndies.com slash weird. You will get 15% off your first order. Free shipping. 100% satisfaction guarantee. That's MeUndies.com slash weird. And get into it. It's a no-brainer. 100% satisfaction guarantee. Put Put something fun on your buns. That's not a slogan. That's what I'm saying. Put some fun on your buns with me undies. All right. Enjoy Stephen Mitchell. Boy, couldn't recommend his work more. Get the way of forgiveness out now. And I hope you enjoy this wonderful, life-changing chat with this wonderful, life-changing man. All right. Get into it. Is Leela around? Leela's in the back. Do you want to see her? Mom, I, you... I, heard, I heard her. Uh... Do you want to bring Leela in for a I second? Love the, I love that... Uh photo of her with the book oh that was so sweet yeah i i just i didn't want to bother you but at the same time i was like i think when it comes to a photo of an adorable baby everybody i, lo- I loved it hi leela <laughs> say hi oh look look yeah here's oh no oh my gosh oh my gosh little munchkin <laughs> Oh, you dears are blessed, all three of you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. If I could feel envy, I'm feeling it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so good to meet both of you. Yeah, Oh, you you two, you three. (laughs) Oh, blessings times three. She's looking very serious. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, all business. She'd like your tradition, Stephen. She'd be a good. Uh, she's a serious girl. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, do you want to go? There right. she is. She's, she's, had she's, she's a she's master. Had she's a master. She's taking love for granted, and rightfully so, Leela. Oh, oh yes. Keep okay. angel. Mwah, Leela. <laughs> Thank Love you, Katie. You. Oh, sweetie, would you would you tell Steve? Yeah. Right. Okay, Have Mama. Fun. Thank Love you. you Bye. Bye. Have a nice walk. We will. Thank you. That was so sweet. That was so sweet. Yeah, we do nice, nice moment. Sorry. I know. Nice moment. We think of Leela. This is going to sound pretentious. I'm just going to allow it, but we do think of her as just such a great teaching in our lives. Um, oh, not pretentious at all. It's, it's the fact. It is a fact. Yeah. I managed to read uh, your, one of your older books, the gospel according to Jesus in a week. And I only mentioned Leela. That means this is in like any free time I had, I was reading that book. I, I think it's a, a masterpiece. Forgive me. I don't know if you get bored talking about something you wrote so long ago, but it is. No, no, not at all. It's life-changing, and it's page-turning, and it's funny, and it's smart, and it's wonderful. Oh, and I'm so glad you enjoyed it. 
Oh my God. Enjoy is not the word. It's one of those books that I read and I'm like, why didn't anyone tell me about this? Um, I, I, a long time ago bought on Amazon, a, a little book. It was hard to find just called Jesus says, because I was like, get, get rid of all the narrative. Just give me the teachings of, of Jesus. But of course it was, it was taken from all of these sometimes not that reliable gospels that we have. So when I found yours, you can read the gospel that you wrote in about 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And I was just blown away. Yeah. And of so, I mean, that has to be something that you continue to feel the reverberations of what it means to people. Yes. Um, and um, right after uh, it was published, um, I was really very touched that I got so many uh, letters from Jewish readers, too, who um, who had not been able to appreciate the teachings of this great great Jewish master because of all the um, overlay onto it that was so uh, distasteful or even repugnant. And um, they were so appreciative to have uh, to have a view, a clear view of him uh, in their in their uh, in their opinion. Yeah, so, it, yeah it was something inclusive. I mean, first to the Jew and then the Gentile. The fact that the Jewish community has been made to draw almost like a political distinction between Jewish masters and Jesus is sort of a disservice to some of the wonderful things that we find in Jesus, wouldn't you say? Yeah, 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 it is. And, um, you know, my own experience of great attraction to him uh, is uh, something that's, widespread but people don't know it until they can read the genuine material without the overlay so it's very widespread at least that's my experience and you don't you're very funny i i, I said the same thing to katie i was like if it means anything that a comedian thinks you're funny when i read <laughs> it, it means a lot i'm glad i i'm, I'm you you seem like such a kind and beautiful soul i'm like can i even appeal to this man's ego but if i can i have wonderful compliments for you <laughs> No, my my ego is smiling. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? He's not our enemy. He's just our shadow, right? We can feed him some some scraps, um, and and love him. Uh, but I I find what I find funny about it is the bluntness. You know, is that it's just like I'm just going to speak the truth as I found it without apologizing, in very elegant prose, but also just sort of like this is it. This is what I found. Like. Like saying, let's drop the Christmas story right off the bat is is kind of like jumping into cold water for a lot of people. Yeah. Never mind, uh, let's let's look at the idea that Jesus um, didn't know his father, and that and that probably informed his both his emphasis on fathers and his emphasis on forgiveness because his yeah. mother and he were ridiculed. But I can feel my mother hearing me say this because she's sort of more traditionally churchy. And I'm like, it's not to throw Jesus away. It's to understand and to know and to merge with and to love him instead of this sort of Captain America or maybe Thor figure that he got turned into that is so inaccessible to Jewish readers and, and frankly, Christian readers. Yeah, Christian readers too. I mean, uh, there's a lot of material that was added later by the early church because of its own agenda. And, uh, much of that material, or at least a significant portion of it, makes Jesus seem like a really angry 
person. Yeah. Um, and anger is not something that uh, an evolved person feels because uh, they're not believing thoughts that would give rise to anger in Katie's term, my wife, Byron Katie's terms. Um, so it's, it's, uh, you could say it's a, a litmus test for somebody's, um, mature, spiritual maturity. And the, the, the picture of Jesus as a, as an angry rebel, rebel rouser, or, or you know, uh, the opponent of the Pharisees, et cetera, et cetera. All that comes from a later generation, um, the first generation or first couple of generations of Christians after he died. And it has uh, not really nothing to do with what I consider his authentic teachings and is um, a, a clear tip off that this can't be um, a, the historical Jesus. Anyway, there, there's a lot that I'd love to talk to you about uh, uh, where it concerns that book. Of course. And I'd also like to get into um, the way of forgiveness. Um, but you said eliminating the Christmas story. I love the Christmas story, even though it has nothing to do with um, G the authentic Jesus. I have a book that hasn't been published yet called The First Christmas, which is um, a, uh, there's a Jewish term, Midrash, uh, which is a, a term for a, uh, an elaboration of something in the Bible. Um, and that's what the, my, my Joseph book is about. But I also have this, um, a, a midrash on the Christmas story, which gets into the mind of Mary and Joseph as Jews who lived in the year four BCE when Jesus is supposed to have born, been born, and um, and elaborates what it must have been like if an angel appeared to this young, um, pure-hearted. Jewish girl, and um, it's not it's not the the pious Christian interpretation of that story. It's a story of great uh, challenge and terror and moral courage. Mm -hmm. um, I, I could talk about that too, uh, but it also goes into the mind of the uh, the ox in the stall and the donkey who's witnessing. <laughs> And, uh, That's it, very Balaam of you. <laughs> you bring, bring the donkey yeah, the, into it. <laughs> my, my little my little donkey is uh, in the tradition of um, donkeys in in Israel is somebody who sees angels. So uh, it, it's it's a lot of fun. Speaking of humor, but yeah. uh, that won't be out for a, a a year. Well, there's nothing. I just want to say there's nothing you could talk about that won't fascinate me. I said to Val, I was like, if I could transplant my brain with somebody forget my spirit, but just my brain. I am fascinated with what fascinates you. So this is a very warm space. We could talk about whatever. Oh, I hear it. Yeah, <laughs> I hear it. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be here with you. On yeah, a, I'm on, very on happy. Morning. I'm so excited. I, well, I was a little, in, not embarrassed, but you know, you have a, there needs to be a new word for the feeling that I was introduced to you by what you wrote with Katie, who we just yeah. had the little cameo from. And I love it. I mean, she calls you um, her cat herder, like you're trying to herd. It's sort of like your work with the Tao Te Ching. It's like you're trying to express, as Lao Tzu was, the inexpressible. You're trying to talk about a formless, nameless truth. 
And you do a wonderful job bringing, sort of lassoing those truths into a realm that can sometimes, in, in Katie's case, it can be a little jarring to speak to somebody that can just be so blunt and, and, and realized, but also with elegance and, and prose and, and beauty. You reminded me of one of the things I found funny in the Jesus book was that you say that um, Joseph was a cuckold no matter who the other guy was, if it was God or it was another man, either way, the wound was at play. Like I was like, that is literally a comedy premise. It doesn't matter that it was an angel or that it was God. It's not your baby. He had to get over that. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's one of the things I go into at greater depth in, in the new book called uh, the first Christmas, Mm. but it's fascinating. It's fascinating that, um, at best, in the uh, in the Christian tradition, he's a figure of um, s- some fun. At least in the in the Catholic folk tradition, he's he's made fun of for being a cuckold. And um, you know, it's it's a bit of an ignominious role that he has to play in the Christ- Christmas story. But if you really meditate on it, at, and my process of writing that book, The First Christmas, was a, a, a meditation, a deep meditation on what it must have been like for a um, a righteous Jewish man of that period to go through the experience of anger, betrayal, uh, horror at his beautiful spiritual uh, engaged young woman to have become for whatever reason um a whore in his mind and to go through that in depth and consider divorce which which is in the the text of matthew um and then somehow come out the other end to a state of um beyond forgiveness of, of, of renewal and of, of, of a deeper love for um, that young woman. So to, it was fascinating to me to, to have to uh, plunge into that mind um, and then come out the other end. And that's Midrash. That's ingesting the story. It's not just reading it. It's wrestling with it. It's ingesting it. You even say in your new book, excreting it. It's intimate. Yeah, it's, it's, it's touching it's, every part of you. <laughs> It's it's going into it so deeply that you become the character and um, and can experience the story from from within it and that's um, you know that that was the 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 deep fulfillment of of writing um, the Joseph book the way of forgiveness I you know it, it's in the hardcover it's called Joseph and the way of forgiveness in the paperback it will be called the way of forgiveness, because my publisher said that um, people were saying, Joseph who, which Joseph, you know, Joseph, the husband of Mary, Joseph, the, the, the Genesis figure, etc. So uh, we revised the title, but it's the same, the same book. It's very interesting. I, you know, what you're talking about with Mary and with Joseph, uh, the mother, the, the husband of Mary, um, Am I getting that right? So many Jewish names. (laughs) We have so many biblical names flying around and they're all pretty similar. When we get into an area like 
did Mary have an affair? Did Joseph consider divorce? My tradition, it's like the game Operation. We're touching the sides and the nose is lighting up red. Like we're out of bounds. Lifeguard, Jesus is blowing his whistle. We've gone too deep. But what I found through through your work specifically, I mean, there is no specifically all of it, is like, let's be free. Let's be free to imagine, embody, um, conjecture, eliminate. This is not relevant. This is not historical. This is clearly an addition. And all of that, we sort of lose like the simplicity of a early faith, like Virgin Mary, there she is, clean and pure, sinless life of Christ, physical death and resurrection of Christ. These were the non-negotiables growing up, but in losing them, and tell me if this doesn't sound like the way spirit works, it's like a paradox, in losing them, the something, we gain the nothing, and as you write, the nothing is much richer and fuller than the something ever could have been. It, It like leads us by the hand it gives us things only to take them away, to trick us, and hopefully, and I'm going to put this to you, to point us into ourselves. Who is Christ? Who are, who are you? Who was Mary? Who are you? And isn't a flawed Jesus or a sinful Jesus or a Jesus that has a hard time forgiving his mother an easier one to fall in love with and be transformed by than, as I already said, the superhero that, that was perfect out of the womb and, and didn't even cry as a baby? These were things that we added to some of our Christmas songs of crying. Yeah. Yeah. He couldn't even cry. That, that's how, how <laughs> oh, yeah. he Well, remember, it, it's away in a manger. No crib for yeah. a bed, the little Lord Jesus. And then it says, no crying he makes. That's not in the Bible. I mean, that, yeah. and even if it is, as you're saying, whose Bible? Like people are adding theology and agenda and all this stuff. You've really rescued Jesus for me in, in such an exciting and for thou- millions of people, it's it's really thrilling stuff. But what what did you make of what I just said? I said well, uh, I I agree. Um, the the figure of Jesus as um, a perfect human being. Well, we're all perfect, but the perfect means something different from what it's traditionally been uh, supposed to mean. Um, the figure of Jesus as somebody beyond. Well, let's talk about crying, you know. It makes crying something, um, in a sense, forbidden or something that a, a perfect human being wouldn't do. But that is so um, untrue of what I like. What I have tried to do is to um, help people understand Jesus's teachings by including the realized teachings of great teachers from other traditions. Um, Because if I'm correct about Jesus as um, somebody who is a realized human being, um, we, we can't really understand him until we understand what it's like for other realized human beings who use other language especially not God language. You can say the same things without using God language. And God language is often very uh, weighted down by, uh, by all sorts of ignorant theologies. So it, it's like barnacles, concepts about God that have gathered around that word. So even using the word is tricky. And um, 
it's like I, I like to uh, bring in the, the verse from the Tao Te Ching, which says, um, for lack of a better name, I call it the Tao, which is so... Um, Stephen, that's the one that I have earmarked. It's 25. It's my favorite one. It, this is your translation. The, well, isn't yeah, that wonderful? I mean, what, great. what what incisive humility there is for somebody. That's that, what I was going to say, that, humility. So, so, you know, I like to say, for, for lack of a better name, I call it God. That's nice. And if people keep that in the back of their minds, even, even you know, devout Christians uh, or or committed Jews, from the from a theistic tradition, if they keep that in the back of their mind, it really um, gives a kind of clarity that they otherwise might not have. Mm. Uh, for lack of a better name, I call it God. Mm. Isn't that isn't that radical? It's 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 everything. I mean, you point out something that I've also enjoyed, which is that the the Hebrew name of God is unpronounceable. And I was like, that alone, you could have a great midrash just on that. Like, yeah. what what brilliance. I wonder, I now we're just geeking out, but I, I hope you enjoy it. One of my great teachers, Richard Rohr, told me that Yahweh was also maybe made to mimic the, the sound of breath. It was like, it was, it was life itself. It was being itself. That was something that he had picked up along the way. But either way, a breath isn't something you pronounce. It's your first word when you're born. It's your last word when you die. It is what is. It is that it is. And, and that is just, that's what we find in some of the Eastern philosophies that I think is lacking in some of the Westernized certainty worship that is certainly what I fell into. The idea, you, you again taught me, uh, or you introduced me to the, somebody said, um, if you turn towards the Tao, you've turned away from it. You could say the same thing. If you're turning towards God, you've turned away from it. It's mm-hmm. little koans like that that yeah. bring you to God. The leaves fall off the tree, as you and Katie say, and it's standing naked. But it's so unsatisfying to the ego. The ego wants to know and know that it knows, and this is my God, and your God is Baal, and it's the wrong God. <laughs> well, you know, um one of the great Christian texts, a text that I love and I've loved for a long time, is called The Cloud of Unknowing. Um, uh, and that basically is a meditation manual, a Christian meditation manual. And it's it's very close to Zen in, in certain ways. But um, the author of the, the anonymous author of that says that really the greatest form of prayer is getting into a, 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 a mental space where there's a cloud above you that's blocking off everything that you know about God. And to sink into that space of unknowing, it, it's a wonderful word, um, unknowing, um, is, uh, is a way to have eventually have your love penetrate into a complete oneness with God. But the unknowing is the path. Uh, my own, um, the, the Zen master that I studied with for many years had an expression, don't know mind, don't know mind. He said, that's the only thing I brought to America is don't know mind. Mm. And, you know, when you come to understand what a powerful 
practice that is. It's not, it's not ignorance. It's the opposite of ignorance. It's, it's a, a state of mind where you step back from everything that you believe. You're not tempted to attach yourself to any thought that passes through your mind. Mm. So it's, um, it's the entire Zen practice that, that I was trained in. Mm. And eventually, um, you become more and more humble and not in a, not in a smarmy way. Humility is something extremely beautiful. Um, and uh, it, it's not what people think it is. Uh, people who, who don't have that experience. It's, it's something beautiful and open and, um, uh, and lo- love, uh, it's really, it, it turns into love because uh, the ego begins to wither away. Mm. And uh, and um, so as a Christian practice, it's the most powerful thing that I've ever seen in any book. And it's very much also like my other favorite Christian writer, Meister Eckhart, who, who knows that state of mind too, and who talks about... Um, who talks about God in, in the same kind of humble way. Um, it's extremely powerful. Anyway, no. my, two, my two cents. <laughs> Stephen, if you, this is your episode, I am here to showcase uh-huh. you. Please talk yeah. as much as you can. Everything you say is such a gift to me. I am just struck when I read your work, when I read the Tao, uh, when I read Katie, uh, your book with Katie, A Mind at Home with Itself, I was reading it and Val and I both, we've, we've both taken psychedelics in the past and we were both like, we feel like we're on mushrooms right now, not in the out of control, whatever way, but in that cloud of unknowing way. It, it brought the cloud over us. Mm. And, yeah. and it's so strange to use the mind to beat the mind, to read words, to rid your mind of words. And that is the compliment I really want to give you is, is you've written words that can rid the mind of concepts. You're giving me concepts to help me push out concepts because I spent so much of my life wanting to do what Jesus would do or be like Christ. And then I realized when you drop everything and you just are, um, what separation is there between you and God or Christ or the Tao? Would you agree with that? I mean, isn't it something that you experience I'll say for me and Val, it seems, I can't speak for Val. I'll say for me, it seems like my spiritual maturity is that I spend more time there. You talk about that. There's a there's a, an initial wake up and then there's the refining and the maturing of that which, wake which, up. Which usually takes many, many years or even yeah. decades. You know, I love that book, uh, A Mind at Home with Itself. Uh, I, uh, I was particularly fascinated with getting Katie to talk about it because the Diamond Sutra, which is one of the great Buddhist texts, maybe the greatest, um, has been on my mind ever since I I was in my 30s and beginnings and practice. I had the experience shortly after I began to practice and meditation of, of trying to read the Diamond Sutra. And it was way over my head. I couldn't get anything from it. The only thing I could get from it was a sense that there was something profound going on here. And I felt like there's an old uh, 
Gary Larson Farside cartoon where, um, do you know, uh, you remember the one where um, the owner is talking to a dog and, and saying ginger, and then he says uh, all sorts of things. You shouldn't do this. You should do that. And, and Gary Larson has the dog sitting there with a bubble over its head and it says, Ginger, blah, 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 ginger, blah, 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 blah. So yes. I put ginger in there. You know, it was a lot of blah, 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 but it was it was profound. And I couldn't grasp anything that was going on. And then I came back to the Diamond Sutra after um, my first uh, Zen experience of, of um, getting a bit of a clue. And it was all crystal clear. It was powerful beyond what I had Wow. experience before so so that was that was an early uh, uh, encouragement to me that I was uh, getting a little clarity through my practice so then you know fast forward what 30 or 40 years where here I am married to this the most deeply realized person I've ever met um, mm-hmm. including my Zen master Byron Katie and to have her experience the Diamond Sutra. I would read her a chapter at a time and then write down what she said. And then uh, that was the beginning of the, of the book. It took a lot of, um, it took a lot of more, more work after that rough draft, but in any case, bouncing it off her and seeing her um, embody or talk about embodying those truths, those uh, basic truths that seem so esoteric at first, but but are are with her brought into flesh and blood. The truths of there is no self, there is no other. I mean, that's mind-boggling, and I can see why you'd feel you're on an, an acid trip, yeah, or a mushroom trip with it. But but making it comprehensible and showing people how it's possible to live that out in specific terms, and her. The work, the work of Byron Katie, her method of self-inquiry, which is um, the most, in my experience, the most powerful spiritual practice that I've, that I know, that I've ever known. It's a way of um, getting beyond the ego, but not by confronting the ego or seeing it as an enemy, but thought by thought, deconstructing each thought, questioning the thoughts that you're attached to, that you believe in, that are part of your own identity, that it's so, that you're so invested in that you don't even know that these are simply thoughts passing through your mind. You think that that's the world out there, but it's actually what you're projecting onto the world. Right. It's making it a world that can produce suffering that can make you angry or sad or confused or depressed, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all a matter of being aware that what you're thinking about the world is not what the world is. Right. I mean, it's very basic and very simple. Even children can do this. So, so to, to anybody who's listening, um, I, I highly recommend the first book that uh, Katie did that I helped her with called loving what is that gives you the basic method and it goes, goes in depth into what it's like. Yeah. Question the thoughts that are your identity. 
Yeah. It's, it's, it's totally revolutionary. I, I, I don't understand why it's not, everybody knows about it, if, if that makes any sense. Cause, but, you know, to your point with the Diamond Sutra, one of the things that I find fascinating about the pathless path <laughs> or the spiritual path, whatever we want to call it, is that you're, that you're sometimes not ready for something. I, I said to Val, I was like, look, I found uh, Ramdas and then I found Richard and then I found all these teachers and they were all, each one of them was exactly what I needed. And then I found Katie. But then I always want to just rush and give people Katie. I actually think that would that would work. I think that's probably a great place to start or a great place to end up. Um, but I'm just sort of like, it's so simple. And isn't that just how it is with, with the spiritual practice? It's like, there's this unfolding, like you with the Diamond Sutra, eventually my heart was ready for something that was like, are you ready to, we've done a lot of talking about realization. Are you ready to start doing it? Every time you think some absurd thought and the liberation and the laughter and the freedom that comes when you realize, as my podcast with Katie, you realize your dad from 1986 is going to barge up the stairs and eat you. He's going to eat you. (laughs) I'm telling you, Stephen, that when I do it, I do because I'd like to think it's because of my practice as an artist. I don't mind being embarrassed. The word again. Story that I was telling. Oh, sorry. I'm not embarrassed, and I recently did the work. Yes, digging real deep, and the thought that I uncovered was: anything that can be given should be given to me. (laughs) That was. That's a story I've been carrying around, even as a sweet guy, as a guy that would tell you he's not competitive. When I'm really quiet, I find the voice of whatever you could call my ego. I'm just going to say it's a part of me. Yeah. And it goes, everything that can be given should be given to me. And I've mentioned that on the podcast before that I'll scroll through Facebook and I'll go, well, that guy's a fraud. This person doesn't deserve that. I should have gotten that. It's happening very quietly, but it's happening. And the work was, okay, stop. And and the reason she has you write it down is because if you don't write down everything that should be given, everything that can be given should be given to me. If you don't write that down, as soon as you think it again, your brain will say, "We didn't think that. We that that's ridiculous. We never would have thought." So you have to write it down and catch it, like catching yeah. it naked with the lights bright on, and then you can actually do the work that it, it lets go of you. You don't let go of it; it, it lets go of you. So it's tremendous stuff. Yeah, yeah it really is. And its simplicity is part of its power. Um, the fact that children can do it is uh, is just something that thrills me. Yeah. Um, uh, your your little Leela is not quite ready for it, but eventually, <laughs> we can't wait. Nine years from now, she will be. Well, the example that Katie and I went over was: there's a monster under my bed, and and when she says to the child, "Well, we don't know that that's true, so we now know that it's the thought." that there might be a monster in your bed that's bothering you. Okay, good. We can deal with a thought. Yeah. That's, that's like the summation of it. It's like, Oh good. It's just a thought. My father should respect me. That's just a thought. We can deal with a thought. We can't control him, but we can deal with the thought. We don't even know that that's true. Can we explore it? I was wondering, Stephen, if you could speak a little bit about, are there any milestone moments of the work for you? Um, 
Sure. Uh, I began, when I first met Katie, um, I uh, had been practicing Zen for, let's see, uh, 27 years. And um, I considered myself, what shall I say, a very advanced <laughs> customer on my way to Buddha. And um, and I, I thought that, you know, the work was wonderful and powerful, and it was for those other people who hadn't uh, had my experience. And there was a moment nine months after I met Katie, and, you know, the first, the first instant I met her and looked into her eyes revolutionized my whole world. I had never seen anything so so beautiful or so profound. It was a heart that was completely opened. And I, I had known Zen masters and spiritual teachers for all that time. And some of them were very uh, clear and powerful, but I had never seen this depth mm -hmm. of, of it. So uh, it, uh, it was an experience of great uh, fulfillment for me looking into her eyes, but also of um, a good de deal of mortification because, you know, in that instant, I saw how um, relatively closed my own heart was in the light of this absolute love that I, I was experiencing from her yeah. <clears throat> and seeing it was like looking into a mirror and seeing that you're more beautiful than you could ever have possibly imagined. It was <clears throat> quite something. But what did, what did you do in the moment, Stephen? Sorry, I just couldn't slow the story down enough. I, I want every detail. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I have I have a pretty um, detailed description in a memoir that will be published in a, in a year or so. Oh, but wow. um, but it was there was no time. That, that that instant of looking into her, her eyes was, it felt like hours, days, years. Mm. Uh, it, it was looking into the eyes and and going, if there's an opposite of a black hole, uh, a hole of light where there's nothing but light and love, it was, it was just superb. And then for mm. the next hour, I sat with her um, saying, nothing just she took my hand we held hands and and it was wonderful and that was the last you know I thought that I I wouldn't see her again but it was a, a complete experience it was completely fulfilling and I I said to myself I never need to see her again this was just everything I had ever desired <laughs> period and then you know the story goes on but but to 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 link it up to what you were asking before so for nine months I was being steeped in the work, I had decided to write uh, the book with her, my, my literary agent who had discovered her um, a year or so before and started practicing the work himself as a daily practice. He was an, he also was an old time Zen student. And I, uh, when he first mentioned her, I, my ears perked up because he was somebody who never talked in superlatives his his good was the equivalent of somebody else's fabulous or fantastic mm. and when he said she's the real thing 
Mm. Meaning she's a, a, a truly enlightened person. I, I, I believed him. I listened closely to that. In any case, so for nine months, I was, I was seeing the work, uh, uh, impressed by it, seeing these great miracles of transformations and people, et cetera, and gathering uh, insight into Katie's mind over all these nine months because it was my training period. It was my absorption period for writing the Loving What Is. But I never felt that personally I needed to uh, to do it because I, I never ran into any kind of um, sadness or anger or something that needed to be dealt with. But then I had, I had the experience with her nine months into it of um, having her do something. It involved changing her mind. And it set me into a, a tailspin. I, I got uh, really upset with her and couldn't get beyond it for, for a, an hour or so and felt myself distancing from her. It was the first time that I, in all those nine months, that I'd ever felt even a moment less than totally intimate. Uh, and and you know in in love and in in as love with her so i couldn't get beyond this feeling and um she said well why don't you write a worksheet and i was embarrassed because you know here as a mature zen student i thought well i'm beyond worksheets but i i i did it because there was no other way at that point <laughs> and um well, that and speaks I, to your humility, doesn't it? I mean, that you're, you're glossing the, over it, but that seems nice. That's good. The, the arrogance, you can, you can cut it with a knife. Um, there's, <laughs> there's a, I, and I had, I, I had known very well, there's a kind of thing in Zen that they call the Zen stink. And it's a, a state of, um, of spiritual arrogance that, that a lot of um, advanced Zen students go through. And I, I went through it pr- in my own way for years and I come out the other end, I thought, but, Mm, mm. but here was another uh, layer of arrogance. But in any case, I did the worksheet and I got stuck at a, at at a couple of places. And the place that I got most stuck with was a a turnaround where I was saying, you know, um, Katie doesn't keep her word. That was my, my, the thing I was working on, the thought I was working on. And so when I came to the turnarounds, the turnaround for people who don't haven't heard of the work, the turnarounds are a way of experiencing the opposite of what you believe, sometimes what you deeply believe. So just to experience the opposite and take it into your life is a great freedom because it, it, uh, it balances the original belief. It, it um, sets off the original belief so that you can get to see beyond it. In any case, the turnaround for uh, Katie doesn't keep her word, or one of the turnarounds is, I don't keep my word. And after you find a turnaround, the next step in the work is to find specific genuine examples of how the turnaround is as true as, or even more true than the original thought. So when I tried to find examples of I don't keep my word, I couldn't. I, I got absolutely stuck because uh, certainly as an, as an adult, and uh, I prided myself on always keeping my word and being, you know, that was part of my integrity, et cetera, et cetera. 
So I just couldn't. And, and Katie looked at me with um, a smile that was, was beautiful and comforting and, and annoying at the same time, because I saw, he saw something in me that I couldn't see and I couldn't get to it. It was very frustrating. So this was, this was around um, one in the afternoon and, and I worked through a number of things on the worksheet, but this place, I, I, I remained stuck. I couldn't get past it. And I spent a very unpleasant afternoon um, trying to figure out what, what was it that I wasn't seeing. And she came back from, from her work and I was still, I still was experiencing that feeling of separateness from her and of, um, you know, of, of, of distrust. And then as the evening continued and I was in the space of trying to see, of not knowing, of, of, of letting, letting it, trying to, uh, letting it figure itself out, suddenly a light went on inside me and I, I understood um, I don't keep my word because because the first the second time I met Katie after that first experience of looking into her eyes, I found myself blurting out, um, "I'll never hold back from you." Mm. I just said it to her. I, it wasn't me. I mean, it's something something in me said it to her. And at this moment, the light that went on inside me was: I've spent almost a whole day holding back from her. I don't keep my word mm. and it, it opened up and it was such as an experience of freedom and connection with her not keeping her word and my not keep. She said, you know, welcome to the rest of humanity. We don't keep our word sometimes. It's your job to keep your word. It's not mine. It's not anybody else's. That is It was an powerful. amazing experience. Yeah. So that was my first experience of doing the work. Oh, I love that. That, that again, is, speaks to the comedy of, Byron, of Katie. It's silly. Yeah. Everybody called it Katie. Um, is that like when I was like, my parents should respect my boundaries. It's like, does that sound like parents to you? My mother's Lithuanian, but I've always said I, 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 she is more like a Jewish mother stereotype. She's very boundaryless. She's sort of like, if she was a, a, a liquid, she'd be like oil. She can like come yeah. under the door. <laughs> she'll find a way in and she'll, and she'll glom on you. I'm telling you, Stephen, doing the work on my mother and my father specifically, I, it has opened me back. It's not just like philosophy. It's not just something that like, oh, don't worry. Don't worry. Be happy. Like they're just a dream. It's not real. It's not just like denial. It's actually opened me back up to like, what's happening now? I'm calling my mother today. I can love her today because, because it's about my love. It's about my experience. But it changed a behavior. I used to have my mom sort of like her text would show up, but that my phone wouldn't vibrate. It was like a do not disturb feature because a text from my parents could ruin my day. Yeah. It's just like, it's, I mean, doesn't that sound familiar? Maybe it's just like, now it's like you take it off and, and it's like, my mom is texting me, drop, drop everything else. Just look at what's, what is. And, and, and that reality, that reality loving is. is yeah. It's, it's wonderful. It's, I mean, when you, 
start to question these thoughts that you've been leaving sometimes all, all your life, even questioning one thought can open your heart. I mean, it, it's like when you cut a, a string in one place, the whole string is cut. Mm. So even, you know, it, it's not a little thing. Even these trivial dissatisfactions can be a path towards opening up in a, in a major way. And that's what I found at that moment. And that's what it sounds mm. like you've been finding as well. It's been incredibly powerful. Now, to the point now, this sounds insane, but you start to look forward to something. You start looking forward to something. To an upset, yeah. To upset you because you know, as, as you guys both wrote in these books, that's a little cue. I, I took so many notes on you. I'm not, I'm not going to break the flow of this conversation to look for them, but you wrote about that as well, even before you met Katie. Yeah. It's like everything is used. It, it, it's, it's in Jesus. It's in the Tao. It's like nothing is left behind. What, what is, I, w- I want to hear your thoughts on what's become of religion, religion being, of course, we have to leave everything behind. It's all of this shaming and renunciation, and it's all hell, and it's all, ugh. I mean, you what know, happened? You know, um, <laughs> this might be a place to bring in um, the way of forgiveness. Please. One of the things that I uh, was delighted with um, in working on that book is the uh, stepping into the figure of Joseph, who, uh, Joseph from Genesis, from the story of Joseph and his brothers, uh, because I've loved that story for, for many, many decades um, since I was a young man. And it's a beautiful story in itself. Aesthetically, Tolstoy called it the most beautiful story in the world. And he knew something about stories. Um, So as aesthetically, even it's a, it's a, a miracle, but also I I've known for quite a while that Joseph is the most spiritually mature person in the whole Bible, in my opinion. Um, And so stepping into that figure and it, expanding it the story is bare bones in genesis and that's one of one of its beauties um that there are um spaces that the storyteller leaves for you to step in and elaborate and understand um um, in a much deeper way so i'm really presenting joseph as what is implied in the original hebrew story Mm -hmm. that is somebody who has through his experience of, of going to that, well, let, let me just sketch the, the story so people who Please. don't remember it well. So he's, um, he's a most beautiful child and uh, extremely intelligent and also arrogant, um, which is something that I know about too. So, uh, and he grows up so unconsciously, such a, such a, a darling of his father, that his brothers, his his um, ten of his brothers, uh, ha- grow up experiencing him as as this condescending, arrogant little brat who doesn't care about them and who's who's the father's favorite uh, to the point where Jacob buys him a coat of many colors and is spoiling him right and left, et cetera, et cetera. So so they uh, eventually get fed up and and plot to kill him and throw him into a well and uh, 
instead of killing him, decide to sell him into slavery. And he gets uh, sold into slavery and brought down to Egypt and sold to a master and his brilliance and beauty carry him into an ex- experience of great responsibility. And then he falls again and and is, is summoned to the Pharaoh and he uh, interprets the Pharaoh's dreams and is put in charge of the whole country. And, and so this, that's the beginning of the story. In any case, the experience of being thrown into the well and, and going to the depths and facing death and uh, great suffering, to my mind, is what allows him the upswing into an experience not only of, of, of great and, and um, enlightened power, but of a forgiveness that is uh, the essence of the story. Isn't that, and, oh, sorry. And it, it, it's just, uh, Jesus talks a lot about forgiveness and says some true and wonderful things about forgiveness, but he's not someone who embodies forgiveness in the same way that Joseph does because Joseph's Joseph has been offended in a, in a, a very personal way and he has to grow beyond that. So mm-hmm. the, the final scene in, in, in the story of Joseph and his brothers is a scene of, of enormous um, power and beauty where he is able to forgive his brothers in, in, uh, in, a, in a most complete way. So I wanted to, embody that in, a, in an expanded story, but to show that the experience of the depths is what allows him of, of, of not knowing, of, of, you know, encountering God in a sense of, um, for lack of a better name, I call it God, you know, the all encompassing, the all uh, embracing wisdom of it. And he realizes that it's not his brothers who have thrown him into the pit. Ultimately, it's God. And ultimately, it's God who will bring him out and save him or not, or let him die. Whatever happens, humans are being used as tools. But eventually, ultimately, it's the intelligence of the universe. It's an intelligence far beyond what we can ever hope to understand that's um, causing what we see as reality. So this is something that he's able to hold in a steady enough way as he rises in power in Egypt that eventually allows him that all-embracing forgiveness of his brothers who, who, who tried to kill him. So that's the essence of the story. I mean, just that. Just that is so good. <laughs> it's a I mean, great... Showing, you know, it's a beautiful thing because stories are how how most of us learn about the world. And, and we believe our own stories, project them onto the world, and that's the world that we know. But this this is one of the most powerful stories that a human being has ever devised. And to, to actually through reading this book, The Way of Forgiveness, when people are able to experience what I experienced, hopefully anyway, if I've done my job, and and see what it's like in great detail to, to be in a place where whatever happens to you, 
you can let go of and forgive. Mm. And um, and I love it. I mean, I I, I enjoyed writing it. Oh, you can tell you're, you're playing on every page. You're playing like like a child in that beautiful yeah. way where you can't wait to tell the reader what's going to happen and, and to paint it, but it's a little bit cheeky. I, I, I don't mean cheeky, like irreverent. I mean, it's, it's not the Zen well, stink. Well, I, well, irreverent, <laughs> yes, too, because I think irreverence uh, in the right hands anyway, can be a, a, a form of reverence. At least that's how I feel. I completely agree. In fact, we've just closed the, the circle on what we were saying earlier was the more irreverent I get, the more reverent I become and the farther away from being a Christian I become, the more Christ-like I become. It's, it's this complete and utter paradox. I, I love what you said. It made me think of so many things and so many things that you've said. Um, Richard Rohr again is coming up. Richard Rohr is a Franciscan. If you don't know him, he's just incredible. Um, he said, you know, there's all this emphasis on forgiveness in Christianity, but he said, and I, I, I'm just saying, I'm enjoying the moment before you've heard this because I think you're going to love it. It's just so up your alley. He says, but the first forgiveness is us to reality itself. Like we forgive reality. And isn't that just kind of another way of putting reality rules? Reality is God. Reality is what's happening. I'm not a separate being. This is a symphony. I'm a note in a symphony. I've heard spiritual teachers be like, Oh, sure. A, a billion light years away, a black hole perfectly balances the, the energy of a planet. But you're having a shitty day. Like, really? <laughs> like, really? Like, get over your small self and like wake up to your brothers didn't throw you into the pit. Reality threw you into the pit. And, and forgiving reality is forgiving yourself is forgiving God. Also, going into the Old Testament. When we, when we say, if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I go to the heavens, you are there. Isn't that talking about reality, being itself, consciousness itself? We've, we've kind of played around with the idea that even if you went to hell, the, the Looney Tunes flamed hell, you'd still be there. You would still be something there. So where can you go that God isn't? Isn't this it, what Joseph is figuring? It, it, it's what Joseph is saying for sure. And that... Um, it's possible to experience reality as something that is always for you, not against you. And basically it's loving what is, I mean, I love that title. Um, It's not only accepting reality, which is difficult, a point that's difficult to get to, but it's beyond that point, not only accepting because accepting can have the implication, you know, of kind of gritting your teeth and, you know, okay, I accept it. Right. But, but loving, um, open-heartedly loving it as, as your, um, your treasure, your, and whatever happens to you, um, whatever is apparently bad or apparently good. That's right. Beyond that, it's always for you. I, I love that. Katie, Katie has an experience that, she talks about in one of the books, I think it's in um, um, A Thousand Names for Joy, of during the first couple of years after her awakening of suddenly finding herself as a speck in the outermost regions of the universe and of of experiencing the the terror of that. The, the thought was... Uh, 
I'll never, I'll never come back. You know, and it was a place beyond being and non-being where there was um, nothing but but that abject consciousness of experiencing nothing of the spit. And so there was that 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 existential terror that she was feeling. And then because the work was so alive in her, always, always present, always balancing any thought that appeared, the, the questioning appeared with it at the same time. So as soon as is it true appeared, I, I, I'm going to be here forever. Is it true? As soon as that appeared, then she was back in her body and, and, and comfortable, comfortable out in the speck in the outermost regions that nobody could ever reach and comfortable in her own body. It was the same thing. Where could you go? Where yeah. could you go yeah. where being is not? When and that verse from the psalm is so, so relevant. I mean, it's, it's exactly that. You know, where, where can I go without you? But the you isn't any different from the me. That's right. And it's a totally loving presence. Um, I have a, one more story that, that can help, I think, with, with this question of forgiveness. Yeah. Showing, you know, how utterly complete it is. Um, I know somebody or know of somebody who's a friend of a friend who grew up with a story about his mother, speaking of mothers. And um, his his religion was my mother ruined my life. So as a as a young man in his twenties and and thirties, he would have failure after failure in his business life and with relationships, et cetera. And it, it was always because my mother ruined my life. And he was a very unhappy uh, human being. And in his early forties he discovered Buddhism and that, that changed his life in many, many ways. But one of the things that, that helped so much was the, a practice called, in Buddhism called metta practice. Metta means loving kindness. And, and one of the meditations in metta practice um, is uh, imagining a circle of your friends and people that you love and who love you and then sending them wishes um, for them to be free of harm and free of suffering, et cetera, et cetera. You, you've probably heard of this. And then to enlarge the circle of people that you're sending loving kindness to, to the people <clears throat> who are neutral in your life, and maybe to people out there, politicians or, you know, ordinary human beings that you've never met and don't particularly care about, you send them these good wishes too. And then when you have are comfortable in that practice, you enlarge your circle to include people who have hurt you and whom you see as enemies. And that can include eventually even people like Hitler and Stalin and monsters and, and even Donald Trump. So, <laughs> so that, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a complete embrace of all human possibilities, whatever you think about them. And so he eventually got to the point where he was very comfortable sending these good wishes to his mother. And it changed his relationship with her and it became much more um, palatable and he became more lighthearted, et cetera, et cetera. 
And this went on for a few years. And then he discovered the work. And what, what he discovered by, uh, by doing the work was that as, as powerful as the metta practice was, he was still sending love to the woman who ruined his life. Mm. It wasn't his mother. It was what he conceived of as his mother. Mm. So then he began to do, to question thoughts like my mother ruined my life. Is it true? Can I absolutely know it's true? How do I react? What happens when I believe that my mother ruined my life? I feel desperate. I feel angry. I'm distancing myself from her. I'm, I'm, um, I'm uh, getting into a state of confusion, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It went on like that. Who would I be if I didn't believe that my mother ruined my life? I would be open to her. I would be more tolerant, I would be more comfortable in myself, you know, and he, he really dug into these, um, to these realizations. And, you know, the turnarounds were my mother didn't ruin my life, I ruined my life, even I ruined my mother's life, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So as he, as his questioning became more acute, and uh, went deeper, he discovered a mother that he had no idea of, and um, he discovered that she actually had been a really good mother in certain ways when he was five years old. The, the thing that broke it, as I remember, was uh, as, as part of finding uh, how a particular turnaround was true, specific examples um, of how my mother didn't ruin my life. I think that was the thought. He remembered a birthday party that he had at age five that she really did a wonderful job with. Mm. And if he could find one example of how she was actually a good mother and didn't ruin his life, he be, he found a second example, then a third example, and it started um, deepening and imploding. And so it was, it was a revelation in so many ways, but that, that, you know, that opened up the question of, that showed showed me that meditation, even even in it, it is wonder one of the most wonderful forms, can stop at a point if we don't understand what kind of beliefs we're still clinging on to. Mm. So sending sending love to the mother who ruined my life was a great thing, but it was still very limited compared to what he discovered. Um, it was like a speck of dirt. Or, or, or dust on your lens and we're meditating through the lens, but we need exactly. to go into the lens and clean, clean the lens itself. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Going back to the Joseph going into the pit. Another thing that you say all the time in your work, which I just love is um, the way down is the way up. And yeah, that, that, that thing from Heraclitus, who is one of the great um, and, and difficult Greek philosophers. Yeah. The way, the way up and the way down are one and the same. I first encountered that in um, T.S. Eliot when I was a, a young man at, at college. I, mm. And, I, you know, it, it confused me and I didn't go any further. But after, after my Zen experience, it seemed like not only crystal clear, but one of the great things that anyone's ever said. Yes. Well, I mean, it, it starts to go to Joseph or to the beautiful story you just told 
this mother ruining his life ends up being the inquiry that opens up his life, that gives him life. In Western culture, of course, we love happy endings and, and we love everything happens for a reason because you get hit by a car, but then in the hospital, you meet your wife. But sometimes isn't it so much more subtle than that? It, it's a, it's, it is a crucifixion. It is a, a quiet death. It is something maybe lonely and isolating, and it doesn't look like there's no parade, there's no celebration, but it's the nothing that is so much more valuable than the everything that, yeah. that I feel like. You know, we can, yes. we, can, we can try on, too, truths like everything happens for no reason, <laughs> you know, and how, how freeing that can be, you know, that, that I love it, for instance, you know, when, when, when people are talking about, you know, a purpose-driven life, et cetera, et cetera to say, uh, there is no purpose. My life has no purpose. And, you know, that, that can be a very depressing thought. But on the other end of it, after inquiry or after any kind of real genuine spiritual practice, that's a freedom. It's like, my life has no purpose. And the turnaround is, my life has no purpose. Well, how wonderful, Stephen. I, I'm so with you. I think that might have been out of my grasp maybe five, six years ago. I'm not sure, but it's like we're building meaning. We're building stories of of purpose, of things that matter, of boundaries that matter, of power that matters, of a job that matters, of a way that you looked at me and greeted me. Here, here's the way that I can kind of get in touch with the space that you've touched on. And I want to hear about that Zen experience. Don't let me forget, but is through lucid dreaming. I hate uh, noise. A lot of the work I do is on uh, noise. It it has psychological ties to my childhood, blah, blah, blah. So I I tend to think I'll do work like my neighbor is inconsiderate. And it's like, do you know that that's true? And it's opened up beautiful things the more I've learned about my neighbor who plays the drums and the divorce that he's going through. Now, when I hear him playing, I'm like, this is his only free time. I I actually see it as a mitzvah. I'm like, he found the will to play the drums today. And I can actually get emotional and moved for him because there is no him. It's just this. But I, I had a dream where I was in my apartment. This was probably 10 years ago. And I became lucid in the dream. Uh, everybody knows that means I became aware that I was dreaming, which isn't that what we're all trying to do. So these are little training wheels of, the, of whatever, of waking up in this life. And in the dream, I could hear my neighbors downstairs playing music. And in the dream, because I knew I was dreaming, I was fascinated that my mind was creating the sound of muffled music. I don't know if, if that makes sense to you. It was... It was utterly delicious that there was something that in a dream I was hearing. Like Katie says this too, if we're in our right minds, everything we hear and see and touch and taste and uh, emote would be the Buddha. And in a dream, because culturally we, we have no problem knowing that a dream is completely our construction, in the dream going, I'm hearing music, but I'm making the music and I'm making it for me. That's, that's the universe for me. I'm doing it. Who else it's, is doing it? it? It was like- a, Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Yes. It was an awakening that, that I try to bring into this dream, into this construct of reality. But I feel like I, I don't want to- well, whatever. I'm not going to put myself down. Maybe I can get in touch with the place that Katie is. I'm not sure. But it's like, that's what it feels like to me, is the fascination that anything is happening at all. And and 
and dropping maybe like Joseph had to the narrative that he wasn't supposed to be sold by his brothers and, and merging and forgiving reality and looking for it as something for him is pretty, pretty deep stuff. But, you know, forgiving reality, you say forgiving reality and, and eventually that means realizing that there's nothing to forgive. Mm. That's what forgiveness is. If you go, if you go deeply enough and Katie has the most wonderful thing, I think that anyone's ever said about forgiveness. Forgiveness means realizing that what you thought happened didn't Mm. not that it didn't happen itself, but it didn't happen the way you experienced it. You're there's, there's, overlay onto reality and when you question your thoughts and and can can take that overlay out reality becomes luminous and beautiful and uh an ex- an expression of pure love i mean that that's an amazing process to go through to experience be able to experience reality that way yes and i want to pick up on one more thing that you said before about something and nothing you know, there's there's a great Zen story that expresses that. That um, one of the great Zen masters, named uh, old Chinese Zen master, named Zhao Shu, walked through the walked through the meditation room and saw a monk um, meditating before the Buddha, before the statue of the Buddha. And uh, you know, oh, I wasn't meditating; was doing his prostrations before the statue of the Buddha, which is, you know a very respectable Buddhist practice. Um, and so he, he, he passed this monk and he, he gave him, he, he hit him with a stick, which Zen masters are, you know, it's not a, uh, it's not a, uh, uh, a very hard hit, but it's something that Zen masters traditionally do. They just give you a little rap. And the monk turned around and said, why did you hit me master? Um, isn't, bowing to the Buddha, a good thing. And the Zen master said, even a good thing isn't as good as nothing. <laughs> that if, if, if people medi- can meditate on that, I mean, that seems absurd. What does it mean? How can that be? Even a good thing isn't as good as nothing. If you hold that in your mind for a while, that could lead you to some interesting places. I I'm going to do that. I, it reminds me of your story with your master where you said, shouldn't I learn Chinese? I thought that was a beautiful story. Would you mind sharing that? No, sure. Yeah. I, and this is going back to the Diamond Sutra. Um, I, I was in Europe. I was reading the Diamond Sutra and I had that experience of, you know, uh, of the dog and the far side, you know, ginger, blah, 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 blah. You know, so I came back to America. This is when I was just starting Zen practice. And I said to um, to Sansani, my Zen master, you know, I, I, I need to understand the Diamond Sutra. So um, I'd like to start learning Sanskrit and Chinese. And he said, he, he, he gave me a look. Uh, it was a very loving but very withering look that uh, I, I got used to in those days. It was as if he was saying, you know, how can such a bright young man be such an idiot? Um, <laughs> and it was, he said, you know, uh, there's no need to learn Sanskrit or Chinese because understanding the words that way are not going to make you have, lead you to understanding the Diamond Sutra. You have to read the words inside yourself. 
And so I never did learn Chinese or Sanskrit. I, I just plunged into the practice. And, and then he, he said, there's only one thing that matters right now. And in the story, you say, I didn't you know better it. than I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, you, yeah, got, you nailed it. But the, the part that you're leaving off is the little addendum where you say, he said, there's only one thing that matters right now. And you gulped and you, you said, I didn't oh. dare ask him what it was, but I knew. And forgive me for playing the role of the student, but I was like, he meant this moment. He meant right now. Is that correct? Right now, yeah. But I mean, isn't that, there? the the teacher Muji says, I think it was Muji said, given the choice between the journey and the destination, the ego will always choose the journey. And I, I think of that all the time when it comes to like, if only I could learn Chinese, if only I could learn Sanskrit. I'm doing it right now. If only I could be as smart as Stephen, if only I could be this, this, or this. When, when we, when even a good thing isn't as good as nothing, if I could just drop it and be it, which I can't, I'll shout it from the roofs. That's, that's literally what we're doing on this podcast. We're shouting it from the roofs. You can do it. You can take a moment, even if it's just a moment to do nothing and be the Buddha. You can be the Buddha until the thought Pete is being the Buddha comes yeah. in that you were, yeah. you were doing it. Well, you don't even have to because you already are. So it's a, just a question of peeling off the layers of delusion, you know, and speaking of Muji, I, you could turn that around too. Uh, and that would be just as true. The ego always chooses the destination because it wants instant gratification. It doesn't want to go through the journey. Mm. The journey is really tough. Mm. I mean, um, it takes a long time, even if you have um, a, an experience of enlightenment. Um, in a way, they're a dime a dozen. I, I hear about these through practice, uh, spiritual practice, quite a bit. But that's not the point. You know, it takes it takes years of refinement afterwards. Um, for most of us, anyway, the, the kind of experience that Katie had and that Ramana Maharshi, some of your viewers may know of him, the great Indian sage who died in 1950 had a complete breakthrough of, of, you know, all the karmic impurities disappearing all at once. That's very rare for most of us who have enlightenment experiences. It takes years of refinement afterwards. And even for Katie, she had to do a year or so of constant questioning of the um, of the residual thoughts that would still appear, um, along with the questioning, but it, it took her that long, and it was always a thought about my mother doesn't love me. That's yeah. what I was going to say. That was her thing, and and again, going back to Jesus, the Jesus that I knew, it, it would that I was raised with, it would have been sacrilegious to imply that he had any work to do. We we yeah. so talk about your ego that wants the instant gratification. I want Superman. Yeah. It has to be Superman. He came from Krypton. But you know, the thing is, even even in the Gospels, even in black and white, um, he goes to John the Baptist to be baptized. Why is he? Why are people being baptized in the Jordan River? They're be ba- going to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. So, I mean, this is not something that Christian theology likes to talk about, but if he's going to John the Baptist for the forgiveness of thin, sins, he must be aware of something in himself. And, you know, my sense of it is that he had some kind of 
um, enlightenment experience at that point if it's true. And it it's very probably true because um, the kind of Christian, <laughs> the kind of Christian editing of anything that would be um, you know um, scandalous in, in in the later church was was must have been pretty um, intense and they could not leave this part of it out because it was so embedded in the tradition already so th- that kind of um, uh, element of it being contrary to Christian doctrine probably means that it's a genuine um, uh, fact in his life so so having him go, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins must mean that he's human just like everybody else. Right. And that John the Baptist uh, was also possibly a person that had a realization. You know what I mean? That that Jesus had a teacher is so interesting to me yeah. and, and stricken oh, yeah, the, from the records. It's incontrovertible that he had a teacher at that point. And as a matter of fact, um, the, uh, the evangelists, one, one of the things that, sometimes um, they tried to do was create or adapt stories that would uh, provide explanations for troubling things that were in the, the, the more genuine layers of the gospel. So one of them, I forget who, um, I think it's Luke, anyway, creates a story that, um, that John the Baptist is actually a cousin. Yeah, I think it's Luke, is actually a cousin of Jesus because Elizabeth was uh, a sister of Mary, something like that, and 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 uh, John, as an infant, recognizes Jesus in the womb of Mary as his his master and master, oh my something gosh. like that. But wow. then John, but then in the Gospel of John, it says that that um, John didn't know uh, that that Jesus didn't know John, or John didn't know Jesus. So it's uh, in direct contradiction to that. So it's interesting when, when you know even even. Christian scholars nowadays um, apply these kinds of um, techniques to reading the Gospels, and it really gets you closer to the genuine layers of what you said and did. Well, that that the Gospel according to Jesus has that rhythm of a whodunit in in that, and when you bring us into the academic process of like, it's not convenient to the church's narrative that Jesus was baptized. It's it's actually quite. In the it's, way. And it's a scandal, yeah. And therefore, this is when you bring us in. It's not you're not just presenting your findings, you're actually giving us a visceral experience of like, I got t- like tantalized. Oh, oh my god, something's happening. Because I was like, that helps us understand that it's probably real because it's not helpful. But then also, you know, you surmise that Christ had issues with his parents, which obviously he says a lot of sort of, I don't know if they're troubling, but sort of complicated things about parents and the prodigal son doesn't mention the mother. And then maybe the last teaching that Christ gave us was about not stoning a woman accused of adultery. And you kind of read into that, that maybe this was him finding forgiveness for his own mother who had been called a whore. Um, I was just like, this is, this is, this is the juice, man. This book was written in what, 1988. I was nine years old when this book came out. You mean I've been living for 30 years blabbing about Jesus on this podcast and nobody thought to be like, hey, have you read, I, I can't believe it. And that's what I'm trying to remedy here today. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it, it really is eye-opening in many ways. It's but great. the essence of that is, you know, 
beside the detective work about his own personal story, that's that's much less important. I mean, it's fascinating, but to me, it's much less important than actually paring away the um, the the excess added by, uh, of his sayings added by the early ch church, the, the the unloving sayings, the angry ones, the uh, the nasty ones, and getting down to bedrock about what this extraordinary man actually came to teach people, to to, sh to share with people of his own uh, experience of God and of the world and of, of how, um, you know, uh, reality is is friendly as katie says it we live mm. in a friendly universe mm. what it's like to to live that way what it's like to experience loving what is and that's where these genuine uh teachings of, of his come from i mean there if you know other traditions the great high points of the other high spiritual traditions like buddhism and hinduism judaism if you know the, the the greatest teachers in those traditions, you can recognize certain things that Jesus says in a most beautiful way. I mean, he's the most poetic of all the great teachers, and and but 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 being a little bit even a little bit sophisticated in other traditions helps you helps you resonate with what he's saying, and that's what I tried to do in that book, The Gospel According to Jesus. Provide other great teachers to illuminate what this great teacher is saying. And yourself as a teacher too, as, a, as someone who uh, has done spiritual work a lot and a lot of it. That's what made it so exciting was it wasn't just a straight exercise in academia. Here's someone who studied, you, you translated the Tao Te Ching, you translated the Bhagavad Gita, you know truth is truth is truth is truth is truth is truth is truth. It, it's always been here. It will always be here. Everybody could be eviscerated, but a couple babies, we would find it again. It's it's what is happening. It's truth is what's happening. It's what's happening. So it wasn't just, well, I'm going to go in and I'm going to please you with my Greek logic and my scientific method. And I'm going to tell you which of these is the oldest and which of these is hogwash. It was somebody going like, every once in a while you would go, the reason I think this is authentic is because it, it speaks to, you, these aren't your words, but you're saying it speaks to my highest self, it speaks to my purest heart, and and it and for that reason, it feels like Jesus, and yeah. I'm like that's special to me. No, there's a there's a resonance of the genuine, and when you when you experience that resonance deeply enough, you can recognize it anywhere or the absence of it, and um, yeah, it's like the story I told about my literary agent. Um, discovering Katie and telling me before I ever met her, she's the real thing. Well, yeah. Right. Once, <laughs> once you get a taste for it, there's that old myth about the, I think it's a wolf that thinks it's a sheep. And then another wolf sees the wolf. He's wearing a sheep's clothing and, and he says, you're not a, a sheep, you're a wolf. And he gives him meat. He starts shoving meat down his throat and he chokes on it. And it's like, as we all do on truth, we always choke at first on meat. But then once you have a taste for it, you, you know it when you, when you see it. It's one of the most is, exciting things. This is not a vegetarian story. <laughs> no, it's not. For me, it would be, uh, it would be a portobello mushroom. <laughs> and it would be a hippie in Venice shoving it down my throat. Um, would you tell us about that first Zen experience? I'm sometimes a bad interviewer. And uh, I don't ask these obvious questions. 
but this is precious. Well, um, this was in 1974 after a year of intensive Zen practice. And my teacher um, was really tough with us uh, on practice. So, so imagine plunking yourself down into this little community uh, of six or seven students. This is before, you know, he got very widely discovered. So he, he had come to America six months before with $100 in his pocket, almost no English, and he was earning his living repairing washing machines in a laundromat. I thought that was marvelous. I mean, what better job for a Zen teacher who whose job is to launder people's minds anyway. So here he was <laughs> earning his money that way and living in this funky uh, apartment in a poor section of Providence, Rhode Island. So that's when I discovered him. Um, and so we would practice four hours every day, two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening. And then once a month, there would be a seven-day intensive where the it would be uh, 12 hours a day of meditation. And then I would also go go off, you know, the, the more, uh, what shall I say, uh, the more radical of us or the people who realized how much work they had to do would sometimes go off and do individual solitary retreats. So in those years, I did... Uh, two or three 30-day retreats, and then several hundred-day retreats, solitary. That was very powerful. And wow. I tell about that in the memoir. But the first one in June of 1974 was in the course of a seven, one of these seven-day uh, intensive retreats. And um, there was no content to the experience. And if I had to talk about it, it seems ridiculously um, obvious to say that things are just the way they are. That's what I realized. Uh, of, of course, it's a duh, but but at the depth that I realized it, I, I, I hadn't seen anywhere near that. And the the lightness of heart that I came out of that experience with was was something I hadn't experienced since childhood. It was just there's no should, there's no must anymore. And, and then one of the interesting things that happened afterwards was I re would read texts that had seemed opaque to me before, like this Diamond Sutra. And there's a book of, of Zen teachings from a, one of the old great Chinese Zen masters uh, named Huang Po that I had been reading and before and had, hadn't been able to penetrate. And after my June experience, I went back and read that and it seemed just crystal clear. Everything, it was like, it was like um, mother's milk. It was so mm. nourishing and beautiful and clear. And, and I hadn't, you know, beforehand, I, it was a, a, a mystery. So, so that was the first little, little opening that uh, a modern Zen master compares this to having a, a window that is totally uh, dirty and begrimed and then suddenly one little spot in the window is is cleaned and you can see through that spot it remains for you to clean out the whole window and then eventually you know there's no window even left mm -hmm. but but that's the first you know the first little thing in, in Japanese they have a word for it called kensho which means uh, an experience of what reality really is like. Mm. And that 
I mean, that opens opens the door to everything afterwards. The the practice any of uh, any mature spiritual practice after the first enlightenment experience is the practice of working through what in Buddhism are called karmic impurities, which in very simple terms are any thoughts that you're clinging to or believing that you're not even aware of. So the practices of, of um, seeing through all of that and eventually getting to a state where you're not projecting anything onto reality. So in your gospel, uh, may, perhaps our Midrash is saying maybe Jesus had the karmic uh, residue after his awakening of I am a bastard, right? I mean, that might have been something he was playing it, with. It, it, it's possible. Um, and, uh, you know, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't sign my name to that. I mean, I, I put that in the book as something that, right. you know, the kind of um, uh, meditation that I had thought was really interesting and that it would expre- explain some things about his teaching, but, you know, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Um, That's exactly, I'm saying as a play, it, it's yeah. valuable. To, I guess what I'm saying is I find value in considering trying on that hat and being like, I wonder if like yeah. me, Jesus yeah. was letting go of some of these stories. Yeah, because there are some stories that I, that I talk about in the book uh, that Christian, the Christian overlay couldn't um, take out of the gospel material that eventually got into uh, the gospels. And every story that involves Jesus's mother, uh, except in the gospel of John, which has almost no authentic material in it at all it's all theological overlay but every story in the in the three what they call synoptic gospels mark matthew and luke that involves jesus mother is a story of uh upset of trouble um and and jesus talks about his mother in in an upset way and he um there's a a fascinating story um about after Jesus's teaching starts to get known um, in Galilee and beyond Galilee, his mother and his brothers go out to what they call the word is to seize him, to basically take him back home because they think he is out of his mind. That's what the Greek means, literally out of his mind. And they go and, and try to, to, to take him home and Jesus won't let them get get into the house won't let his mother come into the house because he says he points to his disciples and his listeners and said these are my mother and brothers not my real mother and brothers the anyone who lists who who hears my word and obeys it are my mother and brothers well you can see his point um those are the people he feels close to the people who are in the process of surrendering themselves to god on the other hand, it's very rude, and you do have a mother. I mean, however enlightened you are, you are still the son of or the daughter of your mother, and if you're not coming to terms with that in a mature way, you still have your spiritual work to do. So there's always a rub around Jesus's mother and, and other sayings about, you know, people, people uh, one woman says to him uh, when he's out teaching, you know, blessed 
is the womb that gave birth to you and the breasts that, that you sucked. And he says, no, blessed are, et cetera, et cetera. But it's that, it's that resistance that's, that interests me. Isn't that the Zen? I, look, I understand that we're skating on thin ice. We live in a Christian country. I, I like to think people listening to this are pretty open-minded, but I'm, I'm wondering, that could be some of the Zen stink. I'm only saying that, of course, I'm projecting because when I started to wake up or whatever you want to say it, I had my period where I was like, there's no mother, there's no father, everything's my mother. And then yeah. as I as the circle closed, I started going, I, you're right, I don't have a mother, but I do have a mother. You know what I mean? Yeah. Isn't yeah. so I'm let's take Jesus out of it and I'll say that reminds me of my own Zen stink. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean the the wonderful thing is that these mothers and fathers and bosses and neighbors are all here to enlighten us and allow us to go deeper. And and and, and for a very simple reason. If if we're ever, if we ever feel any kind of anger or sadness or upset at anybody in this uh, apparently external world, it's simply a signal that we have some work to do because um, something apparently in them is um, allowing us to go off the rails in our own life. Mm -hmm. And that shows us that it's time to question a thought about the mother or the father or the neighbor or the boss. As Katie says, if you think someone else is the cause of your problem, you're insane, which I yeah. think, again, that's... And that says it so, so wonderfully. But it's also, it's your awakening too, isn't it? I, you said things are how they are. Yeah. I had an experience. I, it was, I was on a, a drug, but I thought people don't have to be like me. And again, it seems like something... If it was in your fortune cookie, you'd, you'd say it was a reject. Something was wrong with the fortune. People don't have to be like me or things are as they are. But sometimes you, you brought it to mind the depth at which you realize something. It's what it is, but it's also the depth at which you realize it. So if you realize something like things are how they are deeply, clearly that can open up the Diamond Sutra and others yeah. to you. Yeah. And yeah. for me, it can have a great stress reduction quality i yeah. wonder speaking of one last jesus thing and then i actually i'm going to tie this back to joseph and the way of forgiveness and katie a little bit but i remember in, in be here now around uh, sort of i guess it's like a very light midrash he's imagining what it must have been like for christ to be crucified and that's a very interesting thing to meditate on if somebody is awake to the interconnectedness, the love and the brotherhood, there's no one to forgive. You, you write that, it's not in your forgiveness book, it's actually in the Jesus book. Forgiveness is, is uh, realizing that there is no self that could be offended. It's, it's, it's dropping that idea of self. So if yeah. Christ, if Jesus has lost his idea of self, his small self, and he's being crucified, Ramdas. Uh, hypothesizes that maybe he looked at the the centurion nailing him to the cross with compassion that he he just like what a bum rap as, oh, katie, yeah. as yeah. katie says like i wouldn't want someone to shoot me because i don't want them to have to experience what it's like to take another life is that yeah. what you feel like is happening maybe in our in our thought experiment well yeah i mean i i 
I'm sure that if Jesus was that evolved, I'm sure that that's how he would have looked. And, you know, not that there would not have been any pain. Uh, you know, if a, if, a, if a huge nail goes into your palm, you're going to feel it. Um, but it's, it's that there's nothing around the pain. In other words, without any resistance, even the physical pain is less. Um, everybody can have that experience, you know, of, um, in, in their own lives of pain. And then, you know, if, if, you're, uh, if your awareness is refined to the point of actually experiencing reality in, in frames of a movie, for example, of, you know, beyond time or, or time down to the, the smallest division of time, you may not even experience the pain because uh, I'll go back to something Katie says too, that uh, pain never arrives. It's always in the past or the future. That's what we say and, now. My daughter hit me in, in uh, forgive me, but in the balls the other day. And as she, it was an accident, but as she did, I said to Val, I go, pain is always leaving. And it's a joke, but it totally, maybe I sound like a, a, a weird cult member or something, but in the moment, when I looked at the experience. it, it did. I dropped the story and the story is always, this pain is going to get worse and worse and worse, or this pain's never going to stop, or I don't deserve this pain or whatever it is. But my friend, Michael Gunger tells a story of being in a sensory deprivation tank. And he got into that. He got into the Tao as, as best he could. And he walked out and he walked into a glass door. This is in his wonderful book, this he walked into a glass door and his face was bleeding and stuff, but he didn't feel it because he had absolutely no story of even himself. He, he, he was drifting through it like a swarm of atoms and it just didn't make sense that he would feel pain. And sorry, I, you just got me excited. Apparently <laughs> when I think about pain yeah. is always on the way out. I've known that the memory can't remember pain. It's one of our survival mechanisms. So when you're experiencing it, as if you even use physical pain as a reminder to look at the story you're imposing on it, the pain's going to get worse. I won't be able to take it or whatever it is. And you look at it, what yeah. it is, you always see it's a crescendo going down. It's, yeah. it's crazy. But it, you know, it can be even a beautiful experience. Pain is just pain. So, um, yeah, mm. I, I I can imagine him, uh, uh, Jesus on the cross, feeling that and feeling just great compassion. It's crazy. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. You, the, to bring it back to Joseph, as I promised, um, he falls into a pit. He's the, he's the son of his father's true love, who was barren, who couldn't have a child. She finally has a child. It's so special. We all know this. It's one of the reasons I think the story is so timeless. It's the golden boy. It's the favorite child. And then there's 10 other brothers, and they're all so jealous. He's thrown into the pit, and this is where you aptly and brilliantly put pinpoint his transformation. I think it's interesting and you're so well qualified to speak to both. So I like this question for you. It reminds me of Katie. It reminds me of Katie's transformation being like, my mother doesn't love me. My kids, whatever, my husband, everything's falling apart. There's so many transformations that start. Eckhart Tolle is another one that starts with, I don't want to live anymore. I can't live anymore. This is over. Yeah. And isn't that funny in that? As, as Jesus would say, the grain, the grain of wheat is cracked and now something can grow out of it. Yeah. Um, would you speak to that? 
Well, I think you just have. <laughs> what, what can I say? Yeah, welcome to the show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, what I can what I can say in relating it to the Joseph story in the way of forgiveness um, is that after his experience of going down to the depths, the way down is the way up, eventually, and seeing everything as God. You know, everything happening for, and Katie's words, everything happens for you, not to you. Um, everything happening for him. Then then when he comes to Egypt um, and, and is seen, truly seen, and given him, and given as a slave even, this tremendous freedom, this opportunity to, to uh, become very powerful in his master's house. Even that huge success, he he holds lightly. He's able to hold it lightly because he knows that um, that whatever happens is good, is beyond good. So that allows him when he runs into trouble later, and and uh, this wonderful part of the story where his master's wife falls in love with him and and wants him to make love to her, and he, as a moral person, kindly but definitively says no and she then in her great distress and obsession um, accuses him of rape and then he's thrown in prison even when he's thrown in prison he doesn't experience that as a failure or as something um, that shouldn't be happening because he's able throughout the story to hold the realization that it's all God, that God is doing this as well. So it's not going down again to the depths. It's not the way down is the way up again, because it's always the way up Mm -hmm. or the way, the way period, the Tao, which doesn't go up or down. It's simply what it is. Um, And so even uh, in this period of two years where he's thrown in jail again, he finds a way to thrive and to love it, to find value in that state of being in jail. And then um, and then eventually when he's called to meet the Pharaoh and he's able to interpret the dreams and he's given this unmatched power in the world, this physical power, he doesn't see that as better, any better than being in jail. Um, it's, it's all the way of it. You know, and, and, and this, you know, hopefully, my hope is if I've done my job well, it gives the reader the experience of both the depths and the high places where he's in a position of, um, of helping people um, during a famine and, and, and saving the country and, uh, you know, being as, uh, as powerful a person in the world as it's possible to be. That's not any better for him than being down in the depths. It's all reality. It's the same thing. So it's a beautiful story in many ways, but but especially because it allowed me the opportunity to um, show people what it's like to be in the center, experiencing everything as in in. Jewish terms, theistic terms, everything as this too is God. This too, I'm not doing it. You know, um, it's the Jewish way of of talking in Buddhist terms of no self, no other. Um, 
if if God is is writing the script and I'm just an actor, what freedom there is in that? You know, what 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 responsibility there is in the no responsibility. I mean, people people usually when they hear this or often when they hear this say, yeah, but, you know, if God is doing everything, doesn't that um, take all responsibility away from humans? Isn't that a terrible thing? Well, the turnaround of I have no responsibility is I have total responsibility. And that's just as true. If I have, if there's, if God is doing everything, then I am responsible for being as a clear a vessel of the truth as is possible to be, and um, and and the figure of Joseph in in the book is that figure of enlightened responsibility of um, of knowing that you know when my brothers appear in Egypt and I'm in this position of of the vice vice regal power, it's up to me to not only to show my forgiveness, which has already happened, but to take my brothers into my experience of this friendly universe and to show them that it, it's, it's all beyond good. It's mm. to have them share in the experience. It's a beautiful thing. This brings me to something that I wanted to ask you about Katie specifically, but also about your life with Katie is do people who are totally free need protection? Because never, never. No, <laughs> I have, I have a, when I first met Katie, you know, and we, uh, we first went to New York together. This was um, two months after I met her. Um, we were in a hotel and having dinner it was the last day before we flew back to California. And after dinner, um, we, we thought we'd like to go out for a walk. And I said to her, excuse me for a moment. And I went and talked to the concierge and went back to her. And she said, what was that all about? I said, well, I just asked him um, what the safe neighborhoods were around here, around this hotel. And she burst out into the most wonderful laughter. And she said, uh, something like, don't you know that all neighborhoods are safe? And it went through me, it riveted me. That that statement went through me like a knife through butter. I I knew what she was talking about. I understood it. And it was the first time in my life that I had, being a New Yorker, I just, it was a matter of course for me to um, to consider that, that kind of belief of some neighborhoods are safe and some neighborhoods aren't. And she said, I can walk anywhere in the world. And I have. Uh, I've walked in, in Gaza. I've walked in, you know, areas that people beg me not to walk through. Um, and I do it because I know that I'm safe anywhere. And, you know, the, the odd thing was after that, I went back and I looked at, I, I had, in another connection, I was reading through my Tao Te Ching. And I came upon a line that said something like, uh, the master recognizes that she is safe anywhere anywhere she is mm. and you know it was like katie before the fact mm. that i had somehow intuited that it wasn't a translation you know some of the lines in my version of the Tao Te Ching are, are not translations they're improvisations um this is one of the qualities in the book that people tend to like a lot and sometimes their favorite chapter and 
in the Dao, my Tao Te Ching is chapters that I've completely improvised that I've, where I've, you know, just taken a theme in the original because the original consciousness I thought wasn't clear enough um, for me to translate it. So, yeah, that, that, that image of the master, which I intuited uh, in the late 80s when I was working on the Tao Te Ching and had experienced myself in my own life, um, turned out to be a, a pretty exact portrait of Katie uh, way before the fact. Wow. Yeah. See, that is another way of, I just felt it again, the compliment I had for you, which is if the Tao, the Tao Te Ching is wind, a scholar might just tell you how fast the wind is blowing, where the wind originated from, uh, who first blew the wind. But you really do make yourself a flute and you let yeah. it pass through you. And that's 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 the stable hands. I'm sorry to just, what am I sorry for being a love fest? It's fun <laughs> to be loving. It's good to be gorgeous. It's so, it's such a gift. I really hope you're feeling that in this moment. Thank you. No, I appreciate it. I, I love to have people who... Uh, are open to these books. Um, and if they're not, that's good too. I, I, I don't do them for re- other people. I do them for, I write them for me. Yeah. And then it's a, it's a uh, collateral benefit to hear that they're changing people's lives or giving right. people pleasure or whatever, but that's not the point of it for me. I, I'm so, it's very stoic of you and beautiful is what I mean. And that's what I've been doing when I call my parents now. I call them because I love to love and I love how I feel being a good son. Whereas it used to be these motherfuckers, I have to be a good son for them. I have to play the role. And then this this yeah. work and, and your work has helped me go like, it's it makes yeah. me feel good to love. I can, the example that I gave was I called them and was just like, I just remembered that swing set you built for us. And this maybe sounds saccharine or false, but I really meant it. I was like, yeah, that was so nice. Yeah. I mean, it's, we, we recognize birthday party. Did, did I lose you? No, no, you just um, skipped a a beat, but I I could still understand. Um, No, we, we recognize the genuine. We, we recognize it in ourselves. And that lets us recognize it, not only recognize it in others, but, but you know, open up um, our hearts because um, it, it's, it's already there. It's nothing we have to grasp at or learn. You know, pe- people think that enlightenment is a, a question of getting something that's not already here. But in the Diamond Sutra, the Buddha says, when I attain great unparalleled enlightenment. There's a Sanskrit term that goes Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. When I attained this supreme enlightenment, there was nothing that I attained. I mean, think about that. There's no wisdom that you need to get or reach. It's already there. It's just a question of peeling away these layers of delusion. And, Mm -hmm. um, and there's a way to do that. Uh, it's a miracle that there is that we're living in a time when we can have such powerful teachers as Katie, but but all we have to do is um, peel away that delusion and, and what, and the wisdom is already there. Speaking of that, I believe that Katie who is clearly just 
viewing okayness as different from what maybe I think of as okayness. I I want to I want to be at the Four Seasons in Maui. You know, now I'm okay. And and if we go into the wrong part of Brooklyn, my stories will make it very unokay even before it's not okay. She's okay even in the mugging. If I understand her correctly, she's still okay. I'm just as interested, though, in a, a, a specific to the spiritual path pitfall, which is the emotional vampire, the people that want to just drain her. You talk about looking at Katie in the eyes. Well, okay, let's go to Sedona, Stephen, and let's get a, a meet and greet going with no time limit on how long you get to see her. At that point, don't we get a black car going and and, and don't you say, okay, I'll be the less spiritual one. She's got to go, folks. We got to get her out of here. Elvis has left the building. There's no protection there. Yeah, well, she's a very balanced person. And uh, balance is another way of talking about spiritual maturity. But, you know... Um, When she knows it's time to leave, she leaves. It's it's very clear. It's very simple, uh, and there's nobody that can that can um, abuse her openness because there's n- nobody there to be abused. So I mean, it's like you know, um, it's like one of the martial arts. Somebody's coming to attack you, and and there's air there. That's all there is. Mm. So, you know, uh, it's really quite wonderful when you get to a certain state of, of maturity, all there is, is, um, what you want to do. And then you do it. Um, there's, there's nobody that can oppose you. There's nobody that can get in your way. It's just one of, one of the other great Katieisms is nobody can hurt me. That's my job. Mm. You know, mm. Um, eventually the thought that there's nobody out there becomes deeply true, but it's turnaround also is true. Everybody's out there and it's my job to maintain my equilibrium, whatever happens, you know, whoever, whoever comes around. So no, there can't be a, a spirit, spiritual vampire in Katie's world because um, everybody is the beloved, you know, no matter how crazy they are or how selfish they are, or um, it's all a a manifestation of the beloved. And, um, you know, that includes Hitler and Stalin. I mean, this is, this is pretty advanced advanced stuff, you know, and it can be very, uh, very difficult to hear at first, but um, you know, if your heart is opened, it's open to everybody. It doesn't choose. And um, that that's just the way it is. Mm. Steven, I don't want to take too much more of your time, um, but I, I want to ask you at least one writing question. Sure. Um, you're just so prolific. Um, I wonder if you feel prolific. People sometimes say this is weird, but I only have me. Uh, people say I'm prolific. And then I'm like, I don't really feel prolific. I just sort of things are happening. I wonder if that's how you feel. So that's part one. And part two is Katie has really turned me on to the the Maya, the dream world. I, I'm I'm in the car 
and I'm late. So I'm already thinking about the me that has to apologize and that's causing the stress and, and all these things. So there's all these different me's. And sometimes when I'm writing, especially fiction, which is a lot of what I do, that's sort of my job as I sit and I play these movies of a TV show I'd like to see or a book that I'd like to read. And I really enjoy it. It can actually feel very divine. It feels like it's flowing through me. And yet I'm very, very stuck in illusion. It's my business. I'm making, as you say at the beginning of the Joseph book, sometimes uh, the only way to tell the truth is to make it up. So I'm wondering, I, I don't imagine you have to reconcile that, but what is your relationship to the dream world that is your creativity? And how do you, how do you, how do you explain that? How do you feel that? How do you experience that? Okay, uh, first part of the question about feeling prolific. Um, I don't know what that would mean. Um, all I do is take put one foot in front of the other. So, um, you know, uh, when I'm writing a book, uh, I just go on to the next page, and it goes pretty quickly. Uh, before I practice Zen, I couldn't have imagined this kind of fluidity. And um, when I, for instance, when I began work on the book of Job, uh, that was the first project that I took on. And actually that was what led me to my whole uh, writing life, but also my whole spiritual life. It was, um, it's another long story, but it, it, it was the result of a heartbreak when I was 22 and I was trying to find an answer to my own suffering into the suffering of the world. And I plunged into the book of Job because I felt that at the end of Job, there's a section called the voice from the whirlwind where a God appears who's much vaster than any of the other appearances of God in the Jewish Bible. And I, I was fascinated by that. And I thought, I thought that there was an answer to my suffering in that answer to Job, and that if I could somehow understand it, I was totally baffled by it, just the way I was baffled later on by the Diamond Sutra. But I thought that if I could understand that answer to Job, that I would be able to have a handle on the suffering in my own heart as a result of that heartbreak. That's another story, but mm -hmm. um, my point here is that from beginning to end, uh, um, my work on the book of Job, it took me 18 years. And then fast forward after Zen practice, when I began work on the Tao Te Ching, that took me four months. Wow. There was the difference between a, a very cluttered mind with all sorts of beliefs to a quite empty mind that was able to um, move efficiently and fluidly with an idea that I had that fascinated me. And, and it's been that way ever since. I'm, I'm, I'm fluid with all of these books. Uh, once, once I have a, um, a clear vision of something, then it usually goes pretty fast. I'm not surprised. It shows in your, in your writing, absolutely. That's the playfulness that I was sort of alluding to. This is somebody who's enjoying it, not just accepting it as we were saying earlier but like flowing with it yeah and, it's a, it you know, you know who was it horace i think in the art of poetry said uh, i think that's right um if there's um I, i'm gonna 
improvise with this because I can't remember exactly. If there's um, laughter in the writer, there's laughter in the reader. If there's mm. jo joy in the writer, there's joy in the reader. In other words, uh, you're you're conveying something, not only the content of your writing, but also the spirit of your writing. And that's even more important, I think. So what what I hope I'm giving people in in the way of forgiveness, for example, is a, a certain largeness of vision and a depth of, of vision uh, through this figure of a human being who comes to a state of great spiritual maturity where we can let go of an extremely difficult experience of suffering. Yeah, yeah. so I if 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 your if your own um, sense of forgiveness has been expanded through this book, then I've done my job. Yes. Yeah. It's really exciting. It's 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 not just that it's this great story that even Tolstoy recognized. It's it's that you're telling it. I think that's what makes this so exciting. Oh, it's thank really you. I I take that as a great compliment. Yeah, it's so fun. Well, we're we're pretty much out of time. Did you get to both the, how the creativity? Oh, the, how does the creativity feel in watching uh, mind movies? And yeah, does it feel like a departure from your present life? Or I'm guessing no. <laughs> oh no, it's at the center of it. It's what you know. It's what I love to do when I'm by myself. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's basically a, a, a kind of meditation. It's how I maintain my, uh, whatever clarity I've gained through my many decades of practice. Mm -hmm. That's my practice. And so, you know, for when I'm, when I'm in the flow of it, um, for hours every day, uh, when I'm out with my lap desk, uh, and, a, and a, uh, a notebook or or my um, laptop, uh, I'm I'm practicing meditation. My books are my meditation. So you know I'm. It's a practice for me of intensive listening. I don't ever put my pen to paper or um, start typing on my laptop without having heard something first. So I'm I'm a vessel. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, um, you know, my meditation practice over all those years itself was a kind of listening. It's a kind of mm, openness to whatever's happening, whether it's, um, you know, pain in the knees or, or a thought passing through or the, the vast emptiness of original mind. It's... it's um, Openness, you know, the, the Sanskrit word in the Diamond Sutra, uh, which is shunyata, which is usually translated emptiness, can also mean openness or spaciousness, just not the ego's not there directing things. There's no sense of control. You've let go of control and realize that you never had it in the first place. And that's a very wonderful place for writing because because you, you become a listener to your own deepest self, you know, uh, uh, it's it, openness and, and, and um, enlightenment is not, is not the absence of self. It's the, it's the, um, what can I say? The fulfillment of self it's beyond self in this, not in the sense that you've 
that you, you have no personality anymore. I, I've listened to people who practice some form of, of uh, God knows what, Hinduism or Buddhism that they haven't really understood, and who say, I've seen this on YouTube, who say that they no longer have any thoughts, and they're the driest, most unpleasant kind of people that I've ever seen. And, you know, if that's true that they've gotten to a place beyond thoughts, it's no place that I want to ever be. <laughs> I love, you know, I love somebody like Katie is so juicy and um, full of humor and, and humanity. Um, that's what, that's what I consider in my own experience to be the place of, um, of true realization. It's not, not having no thoughts, but understanding your own thoughts. Right. The understanding is what's important. So, you know, mm. so it's the, the refinement of personality, the, 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 it's beyond ego, but not, uh, not in a way that, that eliminates personality. Mm. I love that. I, uh, it, it's, it's something that I had to grapple with, which was like, do I think this is an error? Do I think like being here is a mistake? Is that like a belief that I have that like humanity is a mistake? Relationship is a mistake. Like growing up in the Judeo-Christian story was, this is not my home. I'm just passing through. Like I'm going to die and then I'll be in heaven. And that's when the real stuff will begin. So of course my lust and my hunger or you and I, even this connection, bleh, bleh, bunch of bunch of stupidness. What? It's all, it's all in this conversation. I don't mean the content. I mean, in this moment. And, and, and of course, Katie is light filled and laughing. And of course you are and, and able to share your creativity. It's, it's not a mistake that we're here. So we don't have to just erase everything. I just love that. One, one more uh, forgiveness question for you. Um, we live, I'm sure you've heard of cancel culture. Like we've sort of become a little bit, uh, it's almost puritanical. I say that with respect. Yeah, that's, that's so true. Yeah, it's very judgmental. We and and you know one of the things that I that gave me compassion for it was that we we were having such a hard time policing Trump. So we've decided to like almost I don't want to say over police, but we're, we're controlling what we can control. There's this guy who seems to be doing whatever the fuck he wants. We feel powerless, so we start. Um, solving the problems that we can solve. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit, growing up fundamentalist, um, it reminds me a little bit of that. When I read your gospel according to Jesus and, and you said that tax collectors and sinners didn't just mean accountants like CPAs and people who lied, you said it was more like the mafia. These were like bad people. Yeah, yeah. And ta tax collectors Trainers were- Trainers and collaborators. That were collecting yeah. unfair taxes through violent means. So the reason I mentioned that, Stephen, and I'm feeling a little bit vulnerable is, you know, there are people in my world, I wouldn't say that they're necessarily my close friends, but there are people in my world that have been um, caught uh, for doing uh, bad things, terrible things. And then, so let's take the obvious one, Louis C.K., he was sort of the big one. If I went and had coffee with Louis C.K., um, I don't want to flatter myself, but to some people that would be newsworthy. That would be like, look at Pete. What a piece of shit. Um, and this is a real, believe it or not, yeah. 
this is a real thing. Louis would come to a club that I work at and he would sit at the table. Do you stay? Do you stay on the bill if he's on the show? So here comes someone who did a bad thing. Um, and to a lot of people's uh, judgment, didn't apologize rightly, didn't correct it rightly. So I've been in my, in the way that I know I've been in the Tao, I've been in the kingdom of heaven You say when we're in the kingdom of heaven, you realize forgiveness only happens outside of the kingdom. We have to leave the kingdom of heaven, forgive somebody, patch things up with our parents, and then we can return to that. It has nothing to do. It it doesn't make sense in the Tao. The Tao has no understanding of right, wrong, scumbag, virtuous, who is a good man, but a bad man's teacher, who is a bad man, but a good man's job. If this is the great secret. as I'll you tell know. you, I'll tell you an, another Katie story about that. Tell I, me, you know, uh, if I had the intention of keeping Katie out of this talk, I would have failed miserably because she's so penetrated throughout my whole life. Well, I but love her. So this is, this is in any Katie. case. So here's a, here's another one. Um, uh, Katie met a very famous, um, teacher, let's say, uh, with a huge audience, millions of people. And, um, and he asked her uh, to do an event with him. And uh, when, we, when Katie and I talked about it afterwards, I said to her, I beg you, please don't do this event because the work is so um, impeccable and so powerful uh, and you know, I, I only want you to do uh, to be associated in public with um, the most impeccable uh, part of the most impeccable traditions, um, because the work deserves only the best. And if people associate you, you with this guy who, to my mind, is a phony then the work will suffer from it. So please don't do the event. She said to me, sweetheart, I, I hear you. I understand where you're coming from. I respect that. And I'm going to do the event. And the reason I'm going to do it is because this man reaches millions of people. And if only one person comes to the event and hears about the work and hears how he or she can end suffering personally if that one person learns one thing from this event then i've been do- then i've done my job and all the rest of it is irrelevant mm-hmm. so you know in that sense it's like jesus hanging out with the tax collectors and and prostitutes it's you know it's my job he said to be with these people and to and to help them out of their suffering you know the 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 righteous people don't need me um, the enlightened people don't need me. I don't need my work to be connected with only impeccable teachers and impeccable traditions. Um, that's a that's a judgment that comes later. But my job is for that one person who comes to see this guy, thinking he's hot stuff, not knowing that he's phony, and hearing about a way to end suffering. So that's the story, and I think that really speaks to your situation too with Louis C.K. I, I, I'm, I, what I'm left, uh, that's beautiful. And I'm like, this is a fake situation. I don't know Louis, but Louis like, let's have coffee. 
what do I, I call you, Stephen, what do I do? What would your advice be to this, to this young man? <laughs> uh, well, I wouldn't give advice for, for one thing, but I would say if it was me and Louie called me up and said, um, you know, uh, I really need some help. I'm confused around some, about what I've done and et cetera. Uh, let's have coffee. I'd say, of course, um, mm. I'll meet you uh, at Pete's uh, at such and such a time on such and such a day, mm. or even, you know, um, uh, without that introduction, uh, you know, he's a, he's a human being who wants to talk to me for some reason that I might not even know about. Um, why not? Um, so, I mean, Katie's worked with people who are far more troubled than that with, with rapists and mur murderers in San Quentin and other prisons. And, um, and they, they can become freer than many people on the outside if they're open to it. Many of them are, you know, if they come to see her in prison and want to learn the work, that's what she's there for. Wouldn't you say, I, I sometimes think about that, that it can be a death before a death to lose your reputation, to lose your, isn't this what a lot of spiritual teachers seem to be turning us to? What I'm saying is if a murderer or a rapist in prison is waking up, let's say faster than a, than a comfortable person in Beverly Hills, maybe I wouldn't be surprised because they know what it feels like to have lost absolutely everything, including love for themselves. They, they, yeah, well, they've been in, in the pit that Joseph is thrown into. That's exactly right. it. It's the it's, way down. It's done. And they, you know, some of them, it's not, it's not a maybe, it's, it's a fact. Some of them are hungry for the truth and are hungry for a way out of suffering because they're, they're, there's no other way for them, mm. you know, um, for some of them. So it's a very, um, it's a very, it's a situation of great ripeness for some people. Yeah. yeah that, makes, that makes sense to me. That absolutely yeah. does. Does Katie swat away mosquitoes? I was walking on a hike <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking about talking with you and maybe I was too shy to ask her, but I was like, I was so, swatting away mosquitoes and I was like, at what point do we stop? Well, I'll tell you reality. Two, two stories about that. I would, the second time I ever met her, this was in 2000, we, she took me on a hike through the, her beloved desert. And at one point we were uh, lying down, looking at the sky and looking at the scenery. And I was about uh, two feet away from her lying down. And I turned to look at her face and there was a fly on her face. So I brushed it away. And she said, um, why did you do that? I said, well, you know, there was a fly on your face. She said, and why did you do it? I, and I said, I thought you'd be more comfortable that way. And she said, oh. And it was like, <laughs> you've never considered that before. I felt like I was, I had discovered someone from an undiscovered tribe in the Amazon who was completely different from any kind of human being I'd ever met. So I, I chewed on that and she chewed on it for her part. On the other, on the other hand, um, <clears throat> on the other hand, when, when we have a, um, a mouse in the house as every few years we we do uh she'll set a mouse trap so um she has much less compunction about uh that kind of thing 
than I do. I I don't like to uh, even think of a mouse in a mousetrap. But um, oh well, yeah. So there's a certain kind of uh, ferocity in her, and it it's it's also uh, it's consistent with a a refusal to to have any of the, well, it's not refusal is too strong a word. It's an absence of any sense of social nicety or um, of, of um, not telling her truth to somebody because it might be uncomfortable. And that, that also is a great freedom for the people she's talking to, because when she says something, you know that she means it. There's, there's no kind of catering to your ego. And um, I love living with her um, among other things, because uh, she never considers my feelings. She'll always tell me what she sees. And uh, um, it's left to me as a, as a mature adult to deal with it. If, if I feel hurt by a, an honesty of hers, then I know it's my job to um, question whatever thought is getting in the way of um, my comfort with it. So it's a great freedom to be living with someone who, who never considers my feelings. That's interesting. I, I wonder what you think about this. I wanted to write a joke about people. I don't know if you know, I, I do stand up or back when that was a thing that he yes, did. <laughs> I wanted to do a joke about people that are like, not Katie, but um, people who part of their personality is like, I don't have a filter. I just say, I just say the truth. And I'm like, well, that presumes that you have access to the truth. So when you say my shirt is ugly, um, how is that true? You're just being an asshole, right? So I wonder when with Katie, she's not saying your shirt is ugly. She's she's speaking in harsher well, truths. For one, <clears throat> for one thing, she doesn't have the concept of ugliness. <laughs> she doesn't have the concept of noise, for example. Um, so, so a lot of what we think of as um, as real isn't there for her. Um, no, it's 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 the it's, here's 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 what it is. At the beginning, when I first met her, I said, "Please, um, don't hold back from me." I, you know, I mentioned that thing. I'll never hold back from you. But also, don't hold back from me if you see a place where I'm off, quote unquote, where I'm. Um, less than honest with you or less than open-hearted, et cetera. I, I beg you to point it out to me. So that's, that's the compact that we went into this with. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it'll be something like, you know, you're being defensive or, um, or you're, um, you're justifying what you said, you know, something like that, where I can, use it and go in and use that to, to find the thought that's getting in the way at that moment. Mm. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's never, it never has an edge to it because there's no ego there when she says it. So it's not like, you know, you jerk, you're, you're wearing a, an ugly shirt or, you mm. know, you're, you're being stupid or something like that. Right. Yeah. That that's what the joke is. That presupposes you know what beauty is or what truth is, but that's not what we're talking about here. No. Was there a part of you when you started dating or started your relationship? Was there a part of you that was like, "Oh God, I hope this isn't 
I hope I don't see the thing that makes it all fall apart. No, I don't, I don't, I can't find that. No, Hmm. no, it was always, um, this is a miracle. (laughs) (laughs) Steven, I love it. I'm so happy. You know what, there, I, I, one of the things I learned from her was uh, an appreciation of the Eagles, uh, the band. I hadn't known of them before. I, I kind of my awareness stopped at the Beatles in the 60s. But so I learned about the Eagles and I was listening to one song, um, Take It Easy, which has a line looking for a lover who won't blow my cover. I don't know if you know that song, but it's yeah, a great song. And um, and I turned it around uh, in you know, with some humor, but but really meaning it too, looking for a lover who will blow my cover. Mm. That's what I invited Katie to do because I, I'm deeply invested in, in, in finding all the places where I'm stuck or um, closed-hearted or unclear and working them through so I can become a clear vessel too. Um, that's that's my practice. That's my commitment from the first time that I discovered Zen and, oh, and what a miracle that was. Cause I, I had been hungry for something like that for, for a long time before as a young man. <clears throat> so that commitment to um, looking for a lover who will blow my cover was pretty, pretty profound. I see that. Is it, I'm seeing this image of you guys, you're on your way to a dinner it's a special dinner. Uh, so there's our future. If we want a problem, get a future. There's your future. you got to get to this dinner. Um, or you're looking forward to this dinner. And then Katie sees a homeless person, and she's in love with them. And she sits down, and she starts patting their hair. And she's just locked in the infinite gaze of the Divine Mother. Yeah. Stephen, you're hungry. I, 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 I love you. I, I'm not trying to catch you. I'm telling you, I am in this place with you right now. I, I'm not thinking about food. I haven't eaten today. And I, I just feel so engaged and so loving and, and, and so open. And I know you are too. And, and so it's not with a, there's no trickery here. I just also know if I don't have the right amount of sleep or if I'm tired, I, I could see myself getting caught up where it's like, I get it, Katie. Everything is a miracle, but I really want to eat some scallops right now or whatever it is. It, does that ever become your work? Is that ever is it ever inconvenient to be in love with love itself? <laughs> no, because I, you know, um I don't feel constrained by that. And as a matter of fact, I remember a, a time where we were walking through um the uh, Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica, and there was a, a homeless guy, an elderly man in his 60s, I guess, sitting on the street and just um, <clears throat> talking to himself. And we both we both sat down with him, and he started to tell us about his life, and it was it was interesting to a certain degree. And then after 10 minutes. <clears throat> And he wasn't trying to con us into anything or convince us of anything. It was, he was a, you know, sincere man. Um, and I was interested up to a point, but after 10 minutes, I got bored. Mm. 
And and I, I said to Katie, um, I'm going to leave. Um, please meet me at such and such a place when you're finished. <clears throat> and she was there for an hour, listening mostly. And uh, and then when she had enough, she got up and and walked over to meet me, and we went on to whatever we were doing. But uh, I don't ever feel constrained by that. I have my own preferences, and I respect them. And I'll go do uh, I'll go do something else. Uh, uh, but she's not she's not um, an airhead. Uh, <laughs> she's aware of time and space, and aware of her obligations. And if she's made a commitment to you, you can be sure that she'll honor it. And uh, if you've made a date with her, she'll be there at that time. Right. You know, she doesn't get waylaid by uh, homeless people on the street when she has something else to do. Uh, right. That's very interesting. I mean, I could do the work on that is the idea that like, there's a there's a codependence in there where it's like, I can't go to this dinner without her. Is 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 that true? Or she'll be mad at me if I go without her or she'll or she needs me to stay. There's just so many beliefs in my example of a stressful story. Yeah. yeah. And, and and just like a good therapist, you're just like, what or like Katie, what if that is true? If if I need to go and she wants to stay, I'm gonna go. But this yeah. sort of leads me to my final question is is like what is it like maybe being in love? Ramdas would say that um, souls, I know that's not a word that Katie uses, but souls don't have special relationships. Mer- uh, egos develop stories like, this is my partner. This is Valerie, my wife. Of course, we know if you and I could step into the timeless infinite, we'd be like, what? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I'm just curious how the game or the dance or the play or the the enjoyment of an agreement of a monogamous marriage of you are my wife when you know she loves everybody when you know in your heart in your truest heart you love everybody how does it why was it important for you to become husband and wife or what value do you get out of that or or what joy do you get out of that or, or what do you take from this question yeah, that, that's a really interesting question and um, would require a long answer. And actually, the answer, I, I hope my memoir can can come out before too long. I think it may be a year and a half or so. It's called The Temple of No Enlightenment. But I have a long chapter about life with Katie, and I go into that kind of thing in, in great detail. Mm-hmm. Um, um so marriage, I'll get to marriage second. The first question is, uh, people often ask me, uh, what, it, what is it like being married to somebody who's as deeply realized as Katie? And um, one of the things I mention is that there's never any residue. In other words, I can do something, for instance, leave that homeless guy and go because I'm bored and go off and some, do something else or, 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 or do or ask her, beg her not to do that event with that famous person because it would, it it would affect the work, etc. And she disagrees. But afterwards, there's never any residue. There's always that that deep love that's always always there. And and I know that whatever I do 
that love is immovable. There can never be any upset. And whatever I see her, whatever pain, physical pain I see her in, for example, and sometimes that has been intense in our life. She's gone through, you know, uh, cancer and neuropathy, which can be very painful. Whatever pain she's going through, there's she's always blissful in, in the midst of it. So there's never any concern on my part that she's, she needs my help, although she always has my help. So, so it's, it's a great freedom to me knowing that she's perfect and always in that state of, of complete fulfillment and that whatever I do, that love is always there for me. There's never any residue. And, and on both our parts, that's true. So that's mm -hmm. the number one. As far as marriage goes, marriage couldn't have mattered less to her. It wasn't in her vocabulary, actually. Marriage was my thing. Um, although, you know, she's naturally monogamous the way I, I am too. So I, I wanted to be married and she found no reason not to be. It was, it was a question of, um, of course, if that's what will make you happy. But for her, it was, um, the marriage was already there from the beginning. And I, it took me a long time to, to uh, understand how it could be possible that somebody who loved everybody, even these rapists and murderers, even, you know, anybody, everybody, Donald Trump, everybody, how a person like that could love one person in a different way and be sexual with that person, uh, it, didn't, it didn't compute because I had never read about enlightened people having that, that element as well in their lives. But, but there it was. Um, you know, she said, the second time we met, she said, you know, I, this is the first time I've met another animal of my species. And I thought, you know, wh who is she talking to? I, I, I feel like I'm such a baby at the depths of love that she exists at. How can she say that I'm another animal of her species? Anyway, it took me a while to, to take that in and to take in, you know, when she's, she was sitting across from me at a Denny's and we were having lunch before I left her that second time. And she said, you know, it's amazing to be sitting in a Denny's talking to the love of my life. And I, I, you know, I heard that. I thought, well, you know, she must say that to everybody. You know, I, this isn't personal, but it was personal. And um, it <laughs> took me, I mean, the, the flip side of my Zen arrogance was um, a kind of, humility that I had to overcome to, to take in that remark and really and realize that she was seeing me in a way that I, even I hadn't seen me at the height of arrogance. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a wonderful, uh, it was a profound experience for me um, to, uh, to meet her in, the, in that way because what I had to do was see myself as I looked in the mirror of her eyes at that moment and at the first moment too, mm. uh, to, to, to take in the beauty uh, 
that I hadn't seen before in me. Mm. So, so the marriage, um, yeah, I, I, it was a learning experience to, um, to understand what marriage was at, at that depth. And um, it had nothing to do with the ceremony that we went through. It was, it was um, seeing how I was her as well as, as me and, um, and that it was, uh, it was a joining beyond, way beyond personality. Hmm. And, and it didn't have to be achieved. It was already there. It was like, you know, the way wisdom is already there. It just requires peeling away a few layers of delusion. So, um, so yeah, the, the paradox was there to be understood. The paradox of someone who loves everybody the same and yet who can love one man in a, in a different sexual way that was, uh, was not the same as, as, as the love towards everybody. It was, mm. you know, the, the way so many um, paradoxes work is that, you know, uh, when one thing is true and its turnaround is true, you have to see the world through both, through both opposites. It's like looking at the world through the right eye and the left eye and that giving you depth vision. Mm. Um, uh, Niels Bohr once said, the th- great physicist said, the opposite of a uh, trivial truth is, is um, trivial, but the opposite of a profound truth is 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 also true. It's a, if it's a profound enough truth, it's opposite wow. also true. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that, um, yeah. That's a. Here's a woman who, whose love is universal. And yet, who loves one person in us in a different way? Uh, you know, I didn't. I never took that personally, uh, to the best of my understanding. It never was an ego thing, because it was way beyond me. It was uh, something that I hadn't expected, and and still don't expect, and wake up to as every day as as a miracle. Um, yeah. You have no residue. Well. Sometimes, you know, the rare times these days when I get stuck, like every six months or every year or whatever, and there is a residue, uh, it's usually no more than an hour or two when I'm stuck, or at the at the most overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, never, never more than that. You know, if I'm stuck at with her at at noon, you know. The next morning at, at, at 7 or 8 a.m., it, it's gone. It's never more than that. So it's never more than a complete day when I'm um, in that space of confusion. Right. But also your experience of her love has no residue. That's always new. No, it's always there. That's always there. It's like Val and I say the way that we uh, articulate our appreciation of Katie is we're like the love in us became Katie to come to us. So if that makes sense, it's like, that's what it looks like. It looks like this woman that came to us <laughs> to wake up the Katie that was in us. And it's, it's almost like you were dating yourself and you had to green light your own wildest dream that that great love would want to be with the, the yeah, that's, that's, that's a way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like, um, 
making love to the Buddha. It's weird at first, <laughs> you know, um, but there it is. Uh, yeah, to, to have that, what a privilege, you know, what a privilege to be so intimate with uh, what I had longed for, for, for years and decades. Um, life is amazing. We live in a friendly universe. Yeah, it is it's, amazing. But it, it, just, we will wrap up here. I'm, I, now you need protection from me because I'll just keep yeah, talking to you. I, I, I could talk with you for hours. Oh, I appreciate that. And also, I, don't, I didn't mean to take away from your agency. I fully believe that if you need to go, you'll tell me. Oh, I would. I, I, I don't doubt it for a second. I feel that power. I also just wanted to say that it does feel very knife and fork it, to have Katie, but also to have her merging with you, not just your head. I don't want to reduce you to your intellect, but your intellect is diamond-like and, and amazing. But the blending of these things together. But you know, uh, as long as we're on that, this subject, um, this is, this interests me a lot. Um, when I helped Katie write her books, um, Loving What Is and A Thousand Names for Joy and A Mind at Home with Itself, the process of, of editing t- fascinates me because what I, what I, what I do is, you know, um, for example, in, uh, in a mind at home with itself, at home with itself, read her one of the brief chapters from the diamond sutra and then listen to her react to it and uh, write that down as exactly as she says it and then ask questions and 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 point her toward complications or or difficulties that might occur for the or, ordinary reader, and so uh, have her illuminate those those difficulties, and then write down the exact words. And then um, in the editing process, it, there's a um, a point in the process where I, I have to uh, clarify because. When she tries to be completely honest and detailed in her awareness, the sentences can get so complicated because she's trying to be so accurate and honest, accurate to her own experience of seeing the world, that the sentences can become unintelligible because the the accuracy spins off into a further accuracy, which spins off into a further accuracy. And the sentences become giant Proustian sentences that that weave through a whole page or three pages. And, you know, it leaves the reader in the dust. So my job with editing is always to strike a balance between accuracy and intelligibility and and to you know the way the way i inhabit joseph or the characters in in the way of forgiveness it's the same it's inhabiting katie's consciousness and speaking out of her awareness but speaking into simplicity and clarity of 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 the english language and 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 then i'll run it by her again and see if that works for her to be to to clarify it and if it still is honest and accurate and she'll give me feedback about that etc but i couldn't do that kind of editing unless i understood her so well that i could inhabit her mind that way 
And when I was working on loving, when I was with her for the first nine months, um, uh, where when I was in absorption mode for loving what is, I didn't write a single word. I was just trying to inhabit her mind. And whenever we were together and she said something that I didn't understand, I would have her stop. I would ask her, I asked her if this was okay, um, got her permission to do it, but I would interrupt her. And I would say, you know, I couldn't follow you when you said this or that and made a kind of, of leap. She was so atemporal and alogical that sometimes she just lost me. So I would stop her and say, I, I didn't follow you. How did you get from point A to point B or point, point X? Um, and, and she would try to explain. And sometimes in the process, she would lose her train of thought and couldn't go back to the original. But that was okay with her. So I would ask all these questions because I felt my responsibility was to understand her mind and the connections she made at every point. And, uh, you know, it was always something intuitive rather than logical. So, so, so you know, the point I'm making is that, um, you know, I have reached a because of my own sense of integrity, an understanding of her where I can actually, you know, write for her and check it out afterwards, but write for her because I, I can speak from the center of that awareness. Mm. So that's part of what has made it such a um, beautiful marriage because I, I know her mind so thoroughly. I can, I can be in it, mm. not hear it um and um you know with with rare exceptions um i i don't get stuck by anything she says or does i mean if you look at your literary career it's like not that it was all practice leading to this the ultimate but it was too it was. <laughs> i have that sense yeah i have that sense you know writing uh the, my version of the Tao Te Ching and understanding the master and understanding my own zen master whom i had my problems with um, it, it was such a, a an amazing education that prepared me for meeting this extraordinary woman. I had um, twenty seven years of practice before I met her, and uh, I I feel that if I had met her without that kind of Zen practice, I, I would have I would have burned up in her in her love. I, I couldn't have taken it. It would have been too much. Wow. And burned up in that, in that honesty too, because, um, you know, for many of us, before we, uh, clarify our minds and let go of, of, of a certain degree of ego, when we meet the depth of enlightenment that Katie embodies, we can't take it. It's too much. It's too, it, it's, it's too upsetting to the ego. And the image that I have of that is um, from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, whatever reality that book exemplifies, it's, it, it's a great metaphor, I think, for what I've experienced, because um, it says that if you haven't practiced to a certain degree or a certain depth when you when you die and encounter the the clear light that is reality that is ultimate reality um you um 
you flee from it. It's, it's, it's too much for you. It's like, you know, being in a movie theater and, and going out into daylight, you have to, you know, cover your eyes. You can't take it. And so people who aren't ready are terrified by the clear light and retreat into a, something more comfortable, another kind of light, and then eventually um, get sucked back into um, a womb and into another state of existence. Mm -hmm. But if you've practiced to a sufficient degree, when you see the clear light, you realize that that is your own essence and you there's nothing terrifying or challenging about it. You recognize it as yourself and it becomes, it appears to you as the most beautiful thing in the world and you merge with it. Mm. So I, so that to me is a metaphor of, that again may seem arrogant, but it's my experience of, of, of meeting Katie, that, that intense honesty and clarity of seeing, seeing that as the most beautiful thing in the world. Mm. And it is. I thought for sure you're going to say the Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they open the Ark of the Covenant and everybody melts. Yeah, and I'm and I'm like, you can't you can't handle it. You, it, it isn't that. When I was in Israel, I remember someone saying that hell was seeing God, but not being not being able to accept it or something. They were t- saying that was the fire analogy. It was like it wasn't a yeah. torture. It was like a burning up of impurities and that's been grossly misunderstood. Boy, what you said was so lovely. I, I almost regret adding my little Indiana Jones button there. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you don't mind. I I seriously, we could do a series of these because every one of your books that I read, I'm going to want to talk to you again. So maybe I'll bother you after I finish the Joseph book or whatever we do. Yeah, I'm I'm open to that. Just um, you know, you know where I am. That's very sweet of you. I, I I'm devouring everything that you so graciously gave me, and um, we are just so grateful. Uh, I, I mean, Val and I both for this for this work and for what you've contributed, and and also everything that you've written as well. It's just been incredible. Um, Thank we, you. I, I much appreciate that. That's great. We, we always end, as I did with Katie, uh, I'll do with you. We, we talk so deep. There's always one light question here at the end. And it's, can you think of a time in your life when you laughed very, very hard? Maybe the hardest you've ever laughed. Mm. You know, right now, I'm so, so present with you in, in this conversation <laughs> that... I can't think of a single time I've laughed in my life. You know, like that's the most. Um, uh, I can't think of a time that I wasn't talking to you. Um, I, I feel similar. And I, sometimes I feel bad for putting the burden on people. So I'm going to say that that is the perfect answer uh, to that question for this episode, that, that this is what's happening. Um, you have this line, is it hui hai? Am I saying H-U-I-A? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just want to read this. Uh, he, you, he, This is in the Gospel According to Jesus. He said, from that day on, I stopped looking elsewhere. So we're looking for this other story <laughs> of a hard laugh. From that day on, I stopped looking elsewhere. Just make use of your own treasure house according to your needs, and you will be happy men. There isn't a single thing that can be grasps, grasped or rejected. When you stop thinking that things have a past or future, and that they come or go, then in the whole universe, there won't be a single atom 
that is not your own treasure. Don't search for the truth with your intellect. Don't search at all. I just, I think of Katie eating the dirt in the desert. There's not a single atom that isn't your own yeah. treasure. It's so beautiful. Yeah. And in this yeah. flow that we've created, that you thank you for your openness to, to do create it with me. Going elsewhere when billions of atoms are enter, entering my esophagus right now and yeah. I'm just busting with life, it seems silly to go. Yeah, well, why would I think of my laugh when your laugh is so wonderful? That's right. Your the, your laugh is my, my that's, laugh. That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, that that is the Tao. That is the kingdom. That's heaven. That's that's what I'm learning. And it's so precious. And I love talking to somebody that not only embodies that, but can articulate it to others to understand. So thank you for your work. Well, uh, I I thank you for this conversation, which was uh, so uh, effortless and such a delight. And I hope Mm -hmm. uh, I hope people will get something out of it. And um, I hope they'll be interested, especially in the Joseph book of the way of forgiveness, because I love that book. And I I think it's uh, uh, for people who are open to it will be such a help and such a revelation when it comes to forgiveness. And most of us, most of us need a a healthy dose of forgiveness uh, going both directions. That's absolutely right. I heard you on the Tony Robbins podcast and they were talking about reading it out loud and just weeping. And I was like, this is powerful stuff. What we're, what we're promoting sounds like such a, a trivial word, but what we're talking about is something that really can open your heart. And, and that's true of everything that you've written. Um, and this well, one feels timely and I hope people check it out. Thank you. Absolutely. This is going to sound very silly now, but let's embrace that silliness as part of our reality too. The way we end is we have the guests say the catchphrase, which is keep it crispy. It doesn't really mean anything. (laughs) For our purposes, what keep it crispy means today is keep in the Tao, keep in the flow. So if you, I I like that. Keep it fresh, keep it crackling. So keep it crispy. (laughs) You get it. Yes, keep it fresh, make all things new, yeah. which wasn't in your gospel. Jesus doesn't say that in your gospel, so it can't be uh, that up to scrutiny. It, it, it happens to be true anyway. So Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's beautiful. Okay. Well, thank you, Stephen. You're very welcome.